Can I can I tell you though one weird thought that I was having while I was watching it because I love Tom Noonan so much that it was a part I think when he was talking to Olivia and I'm just watching his face and I'm like you know he's kind of hot. <laughs> <laughs> Huh. I don't know. And then there's the other half of me that's like, that's no, he's not. Part. What are you talking about? He looks creepy. He plays serial killers in movies. Calm down. And then I'm like, but I don't know. He looks like he could be sweet. Anyway, you can use that on the pod if you want. <laughs> Welcome back to Word of the Witnesses, our 12 Monkeys rewatch podcast. As always, even though it's not always, I am warning you that this is a rewatch <laughs> podcast, meaning if you have not seen the entire series from beginning to end, you are in the wrong place. You will get spoiled. We don't want death threats. So go back. <laughs> that was really, that was, I that was love intense. It. Our spoiler warnings are getting so extreme. <laughs> yeah. Listen, like if I you haven't seen it and you come here, you're fucked. <laughs> I mean, could I be any clearer? <laughs> no. Anyway, this is Beep. Or no, this was Cece saying these <laughs> terrible things. Well played. <laughs> I'm not even here. No one's introduced me yet, so we're good. This is our friend Amy, guys. Oh, God, I wish I had an air horn right now. <laughs> <laughs> Dark Amy. <laughs> I've never wanted an air horn more. <laughs> All right. Tell us about yourself. Where are you recording from? Where can we oh. find you on social media? Where can people send you death threats? You know, that's Okay. Sort of the death threats all go to... We have a theme today. <laughs> <laughs> We're going super dark really early well, on. Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm recording from the Pacific Northwest, the best state in the Pacific Northwest, Washington State. And uh, you can catch me on the Twitters at AimNickRob. That's my handle. And I don't know what else to say about myself, except I'm rickety. And I love TV. <laughs> my joints hurt and my heart does too. <laughs> that's that's because Amy and I are, are so old that we're, we're the people on Twitter saying, hey, do you guys remember China Beach? Like, <laughs> Look, I fucking love that. <laughs> Listen, Dana Delaney, I think come ever on. Since I turned 30, I'm aging in dog years. Okay? So. <laughs> you still got a lot of time to catch up to me, though. <laughs> All right, you ready for the gauntlet? I am so not ready, but I have these horrible notes that says that I am. So let's go. All right, Cece. Amy, why do you love 12 monkeys? <laughs> <laughs> I tried to do my NPR voice. <laughs> did and it's like that question to me is like of course like i mean it's great like what do I <laughs> why am i even here <laughs> why, for why the eloquence here, really that you i provide. know which i knew i was going to bring to this pod right away but yeah that it's the that's the first one where i'm just like oh what the fuck do i say all of it all the above d all the above i love it all it's like it's great story it's great characters uh it's Everything, editing, like direction, it's it's one of the most perfectly done time traveling stories that I've ever seen. And I'm not like a big time travel story fan because um, I I'm a history person. 
and uh, they usually screw it up. But this was because it focused on found family and character and real family. Uh, it's, that's what I love about it. Now you like the movie, right? I love the movie. I loved it. I how like weird you, shit. How, you know that. Or can you compare them at all? What do you think about that? I uh, I wouldn't personally, but no. I mean, well, <sighs> the first season you can a little bit like yeah. the the story, like the 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 through line of the story is similar. Sure. So so there's th- those kind of, and I think that's why at first it didn't catch fire with me really until like season two, once it started getting away from that source material. And kind of like found its own like footing. Then I think that's when it like really became something special. Mm-hmm. Um, but because yeah, there was, in, but that also could be me like loving the movie so much that it was hard for me to like connect with some of the characters because I was still kind of holding on to who originally played them or, or who those characters were in the movie. But right. they they busted that right open because I loved Jeffrey Goines. I loved Brad Pitt's portrayal of Jeffrey Goines. It was unique. It was, it was cool. And for them to gender switch it in such a way that was still paid homage to like his character in like both, you know, physical ways, but just the dynamic performance of it. Like we'll get to who my favorite character is next. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, that makes me that makes me wonder, Amy. Who is your favorite character? Well, well, <laughs> Tina, let me tell you, uh, might be Jennifer Goins. I'm having a hard time with this one though because also Deacon. Like I, oh, both of them. It's both of them. I can't. Are they kind of a package? And they're ways? kind of a package like, as, deal. As it gets later in the seasons, anyway. They're absolutely a package deal, and I think the fact this episode really kind of hammers that home because. Both of them are, well, we'll kind of get into it as we're talking about the episode, but I think like this episode really kind of highlights that their journeys are, are oddly kind of similar as far as how like the other people deal with them and how at first they have had prejudged them and are realizing that maybe I was a little wrong in those judgments. And same with the audience. I think this is also when the audience starts recognizing Deacon and Jennifer for being as great as they are. But, you know, they're my faves. (laughs) So you guys may recognize Amy's voice because when we did the favorite moments podcast, (laughs) it was amazing. You sang Don't You Forget About Me. It was awesome. I might have been a little tipsy. And then we got to ask uh, Mr. Stashwick to sing it in your honor. So, yeah, it's really good to have you here. I, I just, I minute? just got, I know, I'm like, I need to walk it off, Tina. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> I did. I might have, I might have like shed a little tear when he did that. I'm just a little bit, a <laughs> little bit. Uh, do you have any other, so your favorite moment was Deacon handing Jennifer the button and blowing up Hitler. And um, yeah, well, the funny thing about me picking that as a favorite moment is, like I said, I don't normally like time travel shows. i a historian i don't really like it when they fuck with events and things like that and this particular moment is they totally fucked with an event they killed hitler um but that's kind of what made it great because they just kind of went there like they just and they made it funny but poignant at the same time i don't know i don't know and why was, i love that the moment. only time they ever did it and they kind of just threw caution to the wind you know like, right ah, like that was it. the like, only time they just said fuck it you know like right. i don't care what happens on the back end of this 
I feel like like you've earned it. I saw another, and I don't mean to be, like, I just saw a gif for another time travel show where they were meeting Lincoln. And I was like, I don't. I don't know if I can watch that show, but yeah. I can cheer when you like if you're going to do it and you're going to fucking actually blow shit up. Yeah, like <laughs> fuck it up. Like just completely just be crazy with it. And that's kind of why I like that moment just because but it was also like in a it was a great character moment though. Mm-hmm. Like for for both Deacon and Jennifer. Oh gosh, my favorites once more. <laughs> gonna be talking about them a lot mm-hmm. do you have a favorite episode uh like i feel like it's unfair to say the finale <laughs> because it's the finale like but how can that not be everyone's at least one of their favorite episodes um also how often do you not say that about shows yeah see that's true like that's mm-hmm. like some you'll say that about maybe like a season finale that you really liked but then like a series finale it's actually a rare it's a rare thing so they just i it surprised me too like i was really surprised at how well done it was um that yeah i was blown away even though at that point I'm like, this show is amazing. Oh my God. I still like had that apprehension about like, well, can they tie this all up? Like how? Like they have this and this and uh, they didn't forget one single thread out there that they needed to take care of. And yep, that's my favorite. Were you the one that started the tissue pile pictures mm-hmm. on yep. Twitter? Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I, so. I went through half a box. <laughs> I went through half a box and I'm like, I at first I'm like, I got to take a picture of this for myself because <laughs> that's just ridiculous. Um, yeah, because I did. That's how like they really nailed like all the emotional steps, like all the way, every character and it like amped up. And so the sobbing, I would have to stop, pause. I can't. I feel for the people who watch that live. Oh, yeah, I did. Because I... I would have missed half of it, like, because I wouldn't have been able to see through my, like, crazy-ass sobbing. Ah, oh, so wait. Okay, I want everyone to, like, kind of settle in. Get oh, ready. Oh, shit. I know what's next. <laughs> Excuse me. I need to get comfortable. Uh, no, we need to get comfortable. You need to, like, sit. This is the moment you've been waiting for. Oh, I, I do need, need, I do need a drink. <laughs> I do need a drink for this. Do you think Cassie stopped the countdown? Boy, wouldn't it be wild right now if I said no? You threw an audible. <laughs> yeah. I'm just like, you know what? I was convinced earlier today that the answer to this is definitely she just wanted to be in the Red Forest. <laughs> there you go, Sean and Bubs. <laughs> bring it. Bring the all caps that we saw earlier today. <laughs> <laughs> Except y'all are fucking wrong. <laughs> There is no fucking way that, oh, God, of course she stopped it. I, I'm afraid that I'll take an hour talking about why the Red Forest is bad. I think I blew my load earlier today talking about it. <laughs> well, you're doing, you're doing the, you're doing the series finale with I am. So I, I'm, uh, yeah, I think save I need to up. save, I need to save up because yeah. I got, I got thoughts. There's a reason why we're bringing in the ringer. <laughs> The red like, forest I, at the end. I got, yeah, like, this was, I was not prepared for, like, this podcast as much as I've already been mentally preparing for the finale podcast. <laughs> Which, at the rate we're going, will be, like, six months from now, because we talk about every episode for, like, three hours. <laughs> well, it started today with, what, an album cover? 
Tina posts a picture of an album cover, and like an hour and a half later, we're screaming. <laughs> and, and then in I DMs just, about that. You didn't even get into it. You like, walked. You no, did a grenade. I had did to it. take my. It was I I yeah, you did. To. You just walked in, said some shit, left, and like an hour later, it's just all caps. Because my people, kid, my kid, my kid broke her toe. <laughs> I had to take her to the hospital. Well, and go get what a kind cast. of excuse is that? We're talking <laughs> about Cassie in the Red Forest. Get your yeah, fucking but- priorities. Yeah, uh, <laughs> suck it up, kid. Let's get this <laughs> over with. Actually, if people are interested, uh, the UK band Foles, as in. Uh, many baby horses. Um, their album, their latest album cover is a red forest. Yeah, see, that's the bomb you dropped. I know. My <laughs> husband was like, "Did you see their album cover? Do you think they watch Twelve Monkeys?" He was like freaking out. Um, yeah, go check it out. Go look. It's it's on like iTunes. It's not the album isn't out yet, but you can see the album cover is a red forest. Um, would you stop the countdown, Amy, or do you want to save your answer for when you come to come to the end? <laughs> I think I'm going to hold on to that answer. <laughs> All right. Favorite era for costume? Oh, that's really hard, actually. Because I instantly was like 80s because nostalgia. Mm-hmm. But I really like the fucking time jumpsuits. <laughs> I love those. I don't know if what era was that future. Like, what would we say that the era? Splinter is? suits? Yes. Splinter suits? I love the splinter suits. Why did I, I mean, call them time jumpsuits? They're from like 2163 Titan, right? I know. I, I think it's like Titan chic. So 2160, yeah. was it? 2163? Okay, so, so yeah. future era, I guess, is what we're going for. <laughs> That's awesome. We haven't had that answer yet. Really? Yeah. They're sexy as hell. They're, they're amazing looking. They're just really like, I don't know. I'm into future shit, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. They are sexy, um, though. They're pretty hot. They both look really hot in those. So we know the show made you cry. Was there a particular moment? <laughs> Do we? <laughs> <laughs> Since we had pictures posted. Yeah, like, are, we, sh- of are we sure? <laughs> um, you'll have to bring back that picture. <laughs> Recirculate it. But um, was there a particular moment? Like, was there a first moment that made the dam break? Ooh, that is a good question. Was there a first? Dang. It's hard now because, like, when when I rewatch it, knowing what I know, like, mm-hmm. the damn breaks the first goddamn episode. Like, mm-hmm. so I can't remember, like, my first run through where I actually was like, oh, my God. God, maybe lullaby. Yeah, lullaby. I was going to say. <laughs> it's like probably if you lullaby have no other run. answer, then lullaby yeah. is the answer. <laughs> like that, I can fake it and just be like lullaby and everyone's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, everyone totally but you're cried. Right. You know, you're right because Alicia was saying how the rewatch makes us all suckers for crying. And I was yeah. watching with a friend during a snow day yesterday, Mother, and the future asshole conversation, I used to make me laugh. Mm-hmm. And now I was trying to like hold my shit together and not like I was like getting emotional, but I had to like keep a game face because I was like what somebody was watching for the first time, and it was really emotional. And it used I used to find it really funny. Um, yeah. Well, there's even moments in this episode where I'm like, I remember watching it the first time and being like, oh, this is solid character work episode, and blah blah blah. But there were little looks that the characters were would give like there was a look that jennifer like old jennifer gave to cole Mm. that it just like i'm like oh shit where's my kleenex because it has so much of a deeper meaning right knowing that we know the characters know yeah all right so are we ready to talk about it (laughs) 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 so today we're talking about uh, 205 bodies of water it's written by Christian Rydell, directed by Marzi Almas. 
Um, I think this is our first Christian Rydell scribed episode, I think. And she she comes on and she's through the I think she wrote one minute more, right? Um, oh well, so shit. God damn. I, I think so. So she was all the way through the end. She also also is one of the crew that came from Nikita, which was also awesome. But this is a this episode is written by a woman. It's directed by a woman. It ha- it's basically like sort of the A plot is the casting Jennifer road trip. It's just like so many women and it's awesome. Um, this one's also a th- not a throwback per se to Nikita, but because you see the outside of Monkey Mansion like two or three times, and like that was a scene that they used in there, you know. So I'm like <gasps> Nikita. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, that mansion with the pool, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point. Um, so before we dig into sort of like scene by <clears throat> sort of like I I was this episode in particular, like Amy, just to pick up on what you were saying. Now on rewatch. It's really, um, particularly the Olivia of it all is really interesting. So, oh yeah. So, uh, just like first up, it it is a, an episode about road trips, <laughs> road trips with snacks, road trips without snacks, <laughs> road trips <laughs> with guns. <laughs> Road trips with knives. Um, I think I'd. Well, I mean, they're both pretty. They're both pretty harrowing road trips, but they both have some like some great. Um, it's like the girls' road. Would you rather be on the girls' road trip or the boys' road trip? Because <laughs> they're both pretty <laughs> harrowing. Um, but you know, it's they're both road trips that ultimately, like you know, sometimes road trips in real life, you end up hashing out the past. And there are new relationships forged, whether it's in in our in our current time or it's in 2044, like as a result of these two road trips, even if that's not necessarily what was intended by all of the all of the actors <laughs> in it. Um, what I thought was particularly kind of blowing my mind watching this episode on rewatch is realizing now that we know Olivia is the witness is that both the future versions of Jennifer and Olivia are sending people or them or themselves <laughs> this like yeah. makes my brain hurt to go through this day even though Olivia the witness and old Jennifer know exactly what's going to happen yeah and it does set really important things in motion, right? Like, this is what sets into motion the witness being able to enter Cassie's head. There are a lot of repercussions that follow from that. This is the day Jennifer sees the word of the witness and learns she's going to die. Olivia's injury is like the turning point for her journey, right? Like, of starting to question the leadership. And it's kind of like, I think, like a pivot point for her path to ultimately becoming the witness. And then Jennifer and Cassie's bond, you know, is forged. It it begins on this day. So I think we'll get into sort of the Olivia pallid man, their own cycle of it all. But this whole day is set in motion by two women in the future that know exactly what's going to happen. And you, I feel, I just felt really conscious of all of the other characters, how they're stuck in that loop. Right. Yeah. Um, And then just going to the title of the episode, Bodies of Water, that line that Jennifer says towards the end, no more tea, no more water, no more baths. There's just a lot of water and tea imagery in this episode. You've got Jennifer, Cassie, the Pallid Man, Olivia. These are all characters that have like 
Cassie, the Palman, Olivia all drink the tea. You've got the whole backstory to Jennifer's, um, what happened with her mother in the bath. You have Cassie in the bath. You have a lot of discussion about bodies and scars. And I think there's a lot of both mental and physical scars that are kind of dealt with in this episode. So just sort of like the title of the episode, thematically, all of the different ways, the sort of bodies of water and bodies <laughs> are. You know, bats are super sinister <clears throat> on this show. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Yes. I don't think there's ever a time when they're not. Yeah. Yeah, They're very really, creepy. Somebody did not enjoy bath time as a child <laughs> <laughs> in that writer's room. <laughs> okay. So that we're going to start with 2044 first. And the first the first scene, Cole walking in to meet old Jennifer. I just want to be like, ah, like feelings. <laughs> I have so many feels watching this like, again, in a rewatch than I ever did the first time. Like, the first time it was, like, their banter is cutesy, you know? But this time, what really struck me was the look on Jennifer's face when Cole says, um, you were not safe out here. And she has, like, it's both, like, a soft look of, like, this is sweet, like, you trying to protect me, but also that's a knowing kind of I would almost say smirk look because she knows, mm-hmm. you know, what what is going to hell. Like, she, no, she's like, I mean, yeah, you're right. I'm not safe out here. I know exactly like what's going to happen. But yeah, there was something so loaded about the look on her face when he says that. That was both like endearing towards Cole's concern for her, but also the knowing behind it all. Right. And we and in this episode, we we will find out it's because she knows the day she's going to die. Yep. Yeah, from from the day that she is setting in motion, and she knows it's it's coming. Like it's this is old Jennifer we're talking about yeah. here. So her her days are very numbered. So you it's know when imminent. he's talking about yeah, you're not safe out here. She's like yeah, no shit. Well, also <laughs> that, that but the irony to it is is he's like come back to the facility. Yeah, she's yeah. gonna die. <laughs> yeah, which is why her face there. I'm like oh man, like what like. That's the acting just kills me in that because it's like, what do the actors know at this moment when they're playing this? Because how she plays her face in that, it knows everything. It's interesting that she's had exposure to other characters, but she's chosen not to reveal herself to him until now because she's known where he was for a long time. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that. So, I mean, I think just putting yourself into both of their shoes, like if we could do that just for a minute, what, like, first off, what a mind fuck for Cole. He just <laughs> saw her a few days ago and she was like in her early 30s, yeah. right? And that was just a few days ago and she was a mess and now he's face to face with this like like calm, self-assured old woman who has always been there in his yeah. world. Like can you? I, I mean, the mind fuck of of the he was just with the Jennifer who was harming herself, and I, I mean, on, on like the like end of her rope, like just putting together, like even putting aside the fact that the, that these are like two women that are like decades apart. This is the same woman decades apart in age. Even putting that aside, just their demeanor, and and this is his first moment where she's the one guiding him. And his last experience was with her was in that hotel room when he was the one guiding her. It's just like 
ah, right? Like, and then, you know, now as the audience, if we can put ourselves in old Jennifer's shoes, now this old Jennifer isn't the one that knows the end, but it is one who has had so many, all of those experiences when she was young up to a certain point with Cole, who meet, we, we know how much Cole means to her, right? We're going to see yeah. later in this episode, she keeps going back to the same place just to try and see him again. Otter eyes. Right. And it's been decades. And now he's in front of her just like she remembered him. And there's so much that she feels and can't say. It's just like, ah. Oh. These scenes, you're right. Like, you know, I feel like I'm, uh, we were saying in the last pod, like, I, I feel like on the first watch, when you watch these scenes, you're like in Cole's shoes. Like, what is she talking about? Right. And now everything she says has such, you know, there's so much weight under it because we now know like a lot of what she knows. We know a little bit more, but yeah. Well, and the adorable thing about her also in these scenes with, with Cole and, we kind of see how she's revered amongst the daughters and stuff like that. And she has this wise old lady sort of aura about her. But the minute like this young Cole that she always has remembered, like comes walking in, she's that she's still that young Jennifer in there, like the snorting, the making the <laughs> pop culture references, you know, the snort laugh when he actually goes in there and tries to, you know, he's, he's funny. Like he makes his little comment and, and then she's, you know, makes her pop culture references that, which I love. She had a Ghostbusters reference with the dogs and cats living together. Ah, it was like my favorite <laughs> Ghostbusters quote as a yep. kid. I used to like say that speech. <laughs> Same. And nobody nobody gets it. I still I still say it to my kids all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I think that also she's got the touch, she's got the power. Yep. I didn't watch that's Sailor Moon. Uh Transformers. There was a it's also was a song that was in Transformers, the original oh, cartoon. Oh, got it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I hope old Jennifer somehow knows we're, we're at home appreciating the pop culture references. Even oh, my God. Jones and Cole. <laughs> it's like both of the last ones have gone over her head. Um, I, I love it. But I love that he kind of he brings that out in her because I don't know, like we don't ever see her like loosen up when she's around her daughters that because, you know, she has she's mom to these daughters so it's a different sort of demeanor that she has to kind of take on because she's the caretaker but with Cole around she's at that moment it's just like oh she feels that joyful youngness again with him that brings that out in her and it just is sweet it's so sweet yeah. well, she's kind of experiencing everything along with him again yeah you know when yeah. he comes in and like tells her like this is where we are in the timeline she's like oh you cutie like, yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> sweetheart <laughs> awesome yeah, oh man I know I mean that's the other thing it's like you before there was mystery to it now I, it's there's just such a sense of her burden yeah. and how her responsibility to guide him but not say too much you know yeah it's just uh, yeah these I just I was really thrown by how like emotional it was to see the two of them together in the reverse way now. Yeah. Um, so that, I mean, takes us back to Raritan. There's a lot of really great humor <laughs> with Cole trying to stick up for Jennifer as Ramsey and Cassie, like, go off on how annoying <laughs> Oh, my she is. God. I love that. <laughs> like, I don't know why I didn't remember that so well, but when that came up again and they're both like, no, she's the worst. Oh, <laughs> shit. And I'm just like, oh, wow. Cole has a type. Um <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and then my second thought was like, well, Cassie and Ramsey totally should have banged because oh just over their mutual <laughs> annoyance of Jennifer alone was enough to like get one good night in, I think. Another whoopsie doodle. Another yep, another whoopsie doodle. doodle. Join in, Cole. <laughs> There's some great, you know what I, you know, I loved the, um, I had picked up on the season three, like, you know, when Jennifer's in France cracking the jokes about time travel. There's there's some great little, like, kind of meta jokes about the audience and trying to follow time travel or, like, aud- like audience yeah. reactions <laughs> to time travel stuff. Cassie being like, I hate time travel. Or the pallid man being like, you know, it's it can be confusing, but following it can be really rewarding. <laughs> there's, like, some great meta. Okay, um, but let's think about this, too. Mm-hmm. I would wager a great deal that that phrase and that conversation also came up in the writer's room. (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs) I hate time travel. Yeah, but following it will be such a reward. But in the end, this is all going to be worth it. (laughs) Exactly. I feel like that's like trying to like convince like executives that there's an audience for it. (laughs) Yep. It's like, like imagine me being the executive and I'm just like, oh, fucking time travel. Jesus Christ. And they're like, no, 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 wait, it's going to be great. Yes, right. And yeah, there will be people even, you know, nine months after it finished airing, talking for three hours about each episode. Um, So you have, um, you know, there's a there's a great little like, I love how they have like Ramsey as the audience insert where you have Cole trying to be like, you know, Cassie, like. Just trying to like keep the momentum up of recon- of reconciliation and being uh-huh. like, you know, let me let me know, like I, you know, I've got your back. And Cassie's like, okay, I'll let you know. And then Ramsey's like the audience insert, be like, wow, so you guys are getting along. Like it's all played <laughs> with such humor and the like. You're standing too close to me. I can feel your breath on my neck. There's just so much like random humor in this scene. It's great. yep. Um, and then Jones and Eklund on the roof. Do you guys have? Uh, well, I just want to pour one out for Eklund. Just always. <laughs> no, I I really really would have loved to have seen him around longer. Me too. I love him. This is my favorite shirt of his so far, though. The purple. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's Paisley I don't shirt know watch of Eklund. Yeah. Um, do you do you have an Eklund crush that I don't know about? <laughs> I do a little bit. Like, yeah, do you, do you have a little bit. notebook of all of his little outfits that he wore? <laughs> <laughs> I never expected to feel that way about Saltai. I got to be honest with you. Um, uh, so when Jones, I do love the the line. It's just such great writing. This is what happens when you play God and you don't know your lines. Mm. It's so true. <laughs> like, yeah. oh, fuck Jones for always knowing the right thing to say in those moments. <laughs> just honestly. Yeah. I, but I love that, like, you've got that beautiful writing. It's actually, there's so much truth to it that they don't even, they won't even know until the end. But you've got Eklund being like, that's horseshit. <laughs> like, just let's, like, cut through this bullshit. <laughs> and I love that she's like, did that Katarina let you talk to her that way when this one is also letting him talk to her? Uh-huh. That way, like, you know. I was like, girl, you like it. Yeah, but he was Look like, uh, yeah. <laughs> but he was, he's like, oh, look down there. He's <laughs> like, yeah, wait till later. Totally like this dirty talk. <laughs> so the red shirt who betrays Deacon comes back. Deacon, very always insightful on human nature, knows he's lying, and summarily just shoots him in the head. And Ramsey's like, what the fuck? 
(laughs) (laughs) So that moment is going to like set a lot in motion and we can kind of like debate the um, all of the like, you know, they are also going to summarily um, render judgment on Deacon. So, oh, I love this so much. I just (laughs) (laughs) so it's so great. So I sorry, (laughs) I just I love moments in which. Deacon calls out the hypocrisy of like the other characters. Like I love it that he does that because even in that moment, he kind of called out you know Ramsey's hypocrisy about hey you killed all these people my body count is way less than yours buddy. Right now, I mean I think it's we can do we will I'm sure once we get into like the actual Ramsey and Cole conversation when they're weighing it. I mean it is Cassie also is like dude was that the best way to handle it. <laughs> So, you know, I think it's interesting that there is a kind of universal, we should not be handling it this way, whether you are aligned with Deacon or not, right? So like Cassie and Deacon have been aligned and sort of means to an end right now. But even she's kind of like, was that really the best way to do it? Um, But I think it's interesting that Deacon says, why don't we just gather up the primaries and kill them? Mm-hmm. And Cassie uses that and she considers that later on yeah. um, when she's with the pallid man. But if we can just revel in the magic that is Todd Stashwick and Aaron Stanford just like hurling one liners back and <laughs> forth at <laughs> each other, it's fucking magic like i'm i'm glad that it wasn't full love triangle but this like this little moment of just their jealousy and they are being both they're so fucking ridiculous that every woman in the room is like rolling their eyes at them i mean hey look it's time jesus like really (laughs) that was the moment where i was like okay that's my character that's (laughs) that's uh i'm gonna protect him at all costs now well, I love, too, that it's, like, they're both – I mean, first of all, they are they get so involved with their, like, dick measuring contest oh. that they totally lose track of Cassie even actually splintering away. And by yep. the t- before they realize it, she's gone. But the whole, like, Cole trying to be, like, see you soon and Deacon being, like, watch your back <laughs> and then splinter safe. That's so bad. <laughs> That's so, so bad, bad Cole. So I was great. embarrassed for Cole. I had such secondhand embarrassment there. <laughs> Sounds like but, your grandma, right? <laughs> but even well, Deacon was like looking at him like, oh, God, really, buddy? Shit. <laughs> Jones has like zero. She's like no tolerance for this, like gentlemen, right? But I do like it's such a great try not to try not to shoot anyone in the face on your way out. And then it just goes <laughs> to black with Joan Jett. It's just it's so great. Um, So. You know, Cole raises his concern to Jones, and then we get this Cole and Ramsey discussion about what they're going to do about Deacon. So just sort of like the pros and cons, if we just want to lay them out. Um, should I do pro-executing Deacon and you do con? <laughs> I thought you were... I thought you were always con execution. That's why I'm trying to force myself to argue oh. the other. Well, one of the point. things that I that I actually did get it's it's like you did in the last episode or the one before I can't remember um, where they were going to execute Ramsey. Mm-hmm. You know, you got frustrated with Jones and Deacon for being short sighted, and now mm-hmm. I'm like, didn't we just get past that? And now we're just going to execute somebody else? Like they all just need to get their shit together. Well, I mean, so here's here's the thing. I, 
this is what I think is interesting. Um, executing Ramsey for the most part, well, there's a lot of layers of motivation, I think, right? So executing Ramsey for the most part was about the past. It was about vengeance, whether it was Jones pissed off at him because of his part that in, that he played in the plague and the members of her family that she thinks that she lost because of it or Deacon with the grudges. Um, and, you know, I think to a lesser extent, like Beep, as you pointed out, the threat he think Ram- letting Ramsey go like to live poses to his authority um, with the West Seven. This is like if we let's just argue like both sides of it. You have someone who has a like a role of important responsibility, security for the entire facility, who you didn't ask for. He moved himself in, right? <laughs> but now he's there. He's responsible for keeping everyone safe. You lose that facility, like, it's like, it literally is the end of the world, right? <laughs> if you right. lose access to that machine. he His presence is attracting people to that facility who want revenge on him. And he is going around, and when someone he thinks has crossed them, he literally just shoots them in the head. Like, what happens tomorrow when the next person gets into an argument with Deacon? Or he gets pissed off at Cole? Or he gets pissed off? I mean, he just tried to kill Ramsey, like, two days ago, right? So... If you were if you were in an operation and in a closed facility and the person in charge of security is just going around fucking shooting people, you would be worried about that. I mean, you right? really kind of got away who he's shooting. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's true. You got to I think but in this also situation, you made the point that he, you know, the stuff, the Ramsey stuff is more about the past. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, yeah. so is this. Yeah. No, so, oh, yeah. I don't see right, this right. as being at all about the fact that he just shot that guy. This is that's just super convenient. I don't think so. They I, want a reason to get well, rid of him. I will. Like, I, I think Ramsey does. Yeah, I think. Right. For Ramsey, it's very much because he keeps kind of bringing up uh, his past transgressions. I mean, obviously, because we're bringing back, you know, like people from that he's done wrong in the past who we find out done wrong to him that Mm. he's just so I think it has everything to do with the past. Well, no, 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 that's okay. I mean, I think it it has to do with the past to the extent that Ramsey's saying what he did this morning shows that he hasn't changed at all. He's still the guy that shoots people in the head. So, but yeah. Ramsey had just done his shit like ten minutes before when you didn't want him executed. Yeah, no, no, so no. So has I, he changed? No, no, no. I was trying to lay out the argument for what what are the like strategic reasons for why you'd want to do it. Oh no, I know. I just yeah. I don't I don't I, really see much of a difference in yeah. the two. Well, I think strategic. Like, if you want to play it strategically, I think it would be like well. But strategically, one of the reasons why they want to do it is because of Deacon's past, because he has enemies that are going to come and they are a danger to this facility. So because Deacon's past of being a bit of a psycho, that could harm us right currently. So in essence, yeah, they kind of do want to kill Deacon because of his the ghosts that he has, the skeletons in his closet, essentially, because it could harm everyone. Yeah. And well, and these guys are, you know, traveling all the time. They can't be the ones that are. Um, you know, doing security for the facility. They are not even there half the right. time. Yeah, and I don't think it's a coincidence that they the show went out of its way to show Cole and Deacon's jealousy, right? They're rivals. Um, there, there's a lot of personal layers, right? Like if you're Ramsey, you would 
you know, this guy just had you dig his own grave. You saved his life. And now he's just fucking shooting people in the hallway. They'd be like, maybe I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> maybe I shouldn't have brought him back from the red storm. So, but yeah, I think this, there's, there are strategic reasons on the surface, but there's also. Am I a terrible person for being like, oh yeah, he totally should have killed that guy. <laughs> 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 he totally betrayed him and sold them out and admitted I mean, to it. I don't and so he's a traitor. And so either. Deacon's like, I'm going to fucking kill the traitor. I mean, I mean, there's if- definitely a like a code to it. You know? Right. There is a weird on Like I think of the wire. He's like Omar and this is his fucking code. Don't be a traitor. He's going to kill you. I mean, yeah, I guess. But I mean, you probably could have brought the guy to a jail cell and tortured him and gotten a whole bunch of intel on where the foreman is and what his plans are. So I, I don't mean, know how strategic it was to shoot true, him. True, but if he's if they got to waste resources on him then. Mm-hmm. I mean, that this is the thing. It's like whenever we like whenever we argue in these like post-apocalyptic shows, you just got to kill someone like and it's naive to try and do it a different way. I mean, People make the same arguments now that like not being tough enough is naive instead of trying to like draw lines that are principled, right? Like, so I don't know. Um, I'm not a fan of dragging Ramsey out into the woods and killing him. I'm not a fan of shooting that guy in the head. And there probably was a better way to deal with Deacon. <laughs> like, I mean, as long as stop? you're as long as you're a fan of not also killing Deacon, then we're good here. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I was trying to make like so. Then what is what are the reasons why it's stupid to kill Deacon? <laughs> Let's so we laid out like, like the a this- he's fucking capable of protecting the facility. Like he's pretty much shown that. And yeah, it's kind of a harsh way, but he has shown that he can rally his troops together. Like, the, mm-hmm. the West He's 7... He's controlling an army. Yeah, they listen to him. They, in essence, like, do whatever he says, and it's a pretty decent-sized army, considering, you know, what's out there, so... He's done a pretty good job, except Cole does call him out for you're the motherfucker who let those assholes in, but other than that, Deacon's done a good job, okay? <laughs> well, and he also... I mean, you know, you end the episode where you're like, dude, you want that guy on your side if you're up against the messengers, right? Like, right, like, the right. Look, but he—he's a survivor, he also, right? But um, I just yeah. think all of these guys together are just like a tinderbox, though. Like, you either need to execute Ramsey and Deacon and like get them all out of the right. equation, or you have to hope that they can, you know, find a way to work together because. Like, at any moment, one of them could implode on the other. Well, because I think this episode shows that Ramsey and and Deacon are a lot more in common with how they deal with things than they would really like to admit. Yeah. Um, because whereas, like like you said, last episode, Deacon's like, Ramsey's a problem. We need to get rid of him. This one, it, the hypocrisy is fun. You know, like, oh, no, Deacon's a problem. We need to get rid of him. And yeah, like Beep is saying, no, someone needs to step up and be like, how about we get rid of both of you? Because you're both pains in my ass. Which I'm surprised Jones just didn't say. Like, Jones is just like, Cole, can you, like, fucking get rid of both of them somewhere, please? I'm just tired of their bullshit. (laughs) I mean, yeah, but then you, you know, you think to, like, the series finale and you're really glad those two guys were fucking there, man. (laughs) Well, and this is why, again, I love Jones because she had, like, she sees, like, no, we need to keep Deacon around. Like, she's willing to, like, A, work with the devil, you know, to to get what needs to be done, done. So she always right. thinks things through strategically. Well, they're both a different kind of devil, too. I mean, both right. of them have, you know, severe yeah. betrayals going on. 
The other con to, to getting rid of Deacon is, you know, he's a little bit of a devil that you know. And uh, admittedly, like, you know, shooting people in the hallway, like, it's not great, guys. <laughs> I don't think we would be, like, super fired up to be, like, working under those conditions. On the other hand... It's effective. <laughs> <laughs> like... Me and Bieber yeah. always like, but it works. <laughs> yeah, and until until you're the person on, on the other end of the barrel of that gun. <laughs> like then I'm dead. Right. I yeah. wouldn't survive that long. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but but you know, the show has made clear that many of the people in the West Seven are not good dudes. So if you get rid of Deacon who keeps them in line, now you're in a bunker with all of these people who's who's going in a to, power vacuum yeah who's gonna right. keep them under control right like you get rid of De- at least deacon's the devil you know he's yeah, answering to don't jones know anything about what's going on either right like De- even before cole starts to get a sense that deacon is in- uh, at least a little bit invested in the larger mission of making the world better he at least like has a working relationship with Jones and is helping the mission and letting them do what they need to do. You get rid of Deacon and now you've got all these like scavs all there. Like who knows who ends up in charge and that could be much worse. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, have we laid out all the pros and cons of killing Deacon? (laughs) Like uh, before we get to like the, as Dr. Eklund puts it, the weapons grade irony and how they go about doing it (laughs) (laughs) so they get to the road trip again this is like i just want to watch these three actors giving each other shit in a car for much oh god it's so entertaining it's so good um you've got like deacon and ramsey calling each other out for all of their you know letting the messengers in yeah but i could kill a bunch of people every day i still wouldn't get to your body count those people are already dead that you know so what your lady make bath it's just so great we we know deacon you know read shakespeare apparently um books didn't die in the apocalypse of course he did He's um, layered. <laughs> he's very layered. I can think of other characters he's similar to in other shows, but I will not because <laughs> Tina hasn't watched them yet. I'm trying really hard with my Buffy watch. I am. Um, there's just a lot of fucking episodes. 22 episodes per season is a lot. I know. I'm sorry. It's worth yeah. it. <laughs> so the line that, you know, Deacon makes clear that he is working toward a world that isn't this. And I think it's a little bit like it definitely, the camera definitely shows us like it's registering on Cole's face. I can't help but now, like when you hear Deacon describing a world of, you know, he's like, yeah, so what? Like a better world than this piece of shit. You know, I can't help but now picture Deacon in his bar. Mm. And then I was like trying to talk about this, why the slinking away kind of bothered him. Yeah. Because right. you're saying he he respects when people like stand up to him, even if that's in a way where they would like murder him. Well, yeah, I think there's that, but I also really like going back to like Deacon, how he considers Cole like a brother. So I think also for Cole to like slink away without saying anything, mm-hmm. like also hit like a core hurt for Deacon because you can clearly tell that he felt a connection to Cole throughout. So it's almost like he's losing someone he considered a friend in, in like a situation where, you know, friends are hard to come by in the post-apocalypse. So and and we know also about Deacon that he wants to like try to be a better man in this world. 
And he believes like all his moves and decisions are about saving humanity and stuff. So I think there's that part of him too that respects the way like Cole and Ramsey obviously have a moral code. Um, and he kind of needs, needed, needs that a little bit, which is why he obviously when he comes back from, you know, doing whatever he did to the foreman that he, you know, kind of is like, Hey, let's just forget about this and, and move on. So I think there's this part of him that <laughs> wants to be friends with <laughs> Cole and Ramsey. <laughs> he wants him to be because he wants to be like a little, he wants a little of that to rub off on him. But also he sees that he's kind of also rubbing off on them. Like they're getting stronger because he feels because of him, you know, like, Hey, you graduated from the West seven school. Um, so I think a lot of it too was just like a hurt because of how connected like Deacon sees Cole as like this, this kind of a do over for him as far as his brother, you know? So I think when he's like, make, he said the line about like, you finally like er, have learned, you know, whatever from me because he couldn't protect his brother. Right. And that's like this huge kind of core driving thing for him as we see, you know, when he sees his brother's knife and stuff like that. So, you know, Cole leaving all this kind of stuff, like wanting Cole to learn how to protect himself seems to be something that is is important for Deacon. Yeah, which is, you know, there's so many little breadcrumbs that get spread along the way that then when, once we have the whole, the whole backstory of Deacon, yeah. when you watch the scene like this. So the scene we're going to get later on um, in the season when, you know, Deacon is drunk and Cole's trying to, like, inspire him <laughs> to, like, <laughs> right? And he's like, Christ, do you even sound like him? Yeah, and then, yeah. And then the the scene when he's alone in the jail cell in Titan and, he, you know, he's imagining his father saying, you kept your brother weak and that's why he died. Yeah. So it informs, like, now, when you're seeing these lessons that, you know, that Deacon is like, okay, you finally learned, you know, like, yeah, respect. because he's there's so much of him projecting like his brother, and what had happened to his brother onto Cole, like he it's like Cole is is Deacon's do over. And right. I think even with the violence, because obviously, it's not just the, the brother um, stuff that Deacon struggles with, but also that thing that all kids who, um, came from abused situations that he struggles with feeling like, Oh, I'm becoming my father. Um, so these violent, it's so hard for kids that come from a violent childhood to break out of that violent circle. And, and, you know, that's why he has this tendency towards violence working because he was brought up thinking that his father putting it on him, like, Hey, the violence that I am putting on you is causing you to be stronger and surviving. So there's a part of Deacon that's, that's what we're seeing is his struggle to move past that. And I think that's where like Cole and Ramsey and seeing, cause, cause Deacon clearly has a code, you know, mm-hmm. like he, he clearly is, is good at gathering his troops and, and that family that he built, it, they're, they are surviving. Like, yeah, it's through really morally, like, gray areas but they're surviving and it's him i think having to reckon with his the violent ways in which he's trying to survive and cole and ramsey are providing a way that he can move beyond like his father's upbringing and then we see that obviously when he has that conversation with his you know imagined father when he's locked up 
But I think that has a lot to do with it. I think there are a couple obvious facets to Deacon's code, if you will. One of them is very much an us versus them. You know, if you're in, you're in. And if you're out, like, you're essentially, like, not even human in the sense of, like, your life just doesn't matter. Right. And then the second one, I think, is just survival of the fittest. And he thinks, like, if you couldn't stand up against us, then you're of no use. Well, yeah, you're weak. You're a weak link here. And that will, that it hinders our chance of survival. Right. Because weak people die. That's what he's learned. And then that's what he perpetuates. It also is not in, you know, one thing that is, that has this conversation reveals that, that Cole re- registers on his face is Deacon, you know, the Deacon and Atari was like, the conversation he had with Ramsey was, this is what the world is. And Ramsey, Ramsey was the one that was like, it doesn't have to, like, if this is what the world, it shouldn't be this, right? This is a Deacon that now, because of Cassie, because of seeing the time machine and and spending those months with Jones, he now has a vision of something else to work toward beyond just survival. But he's taking the lessons he's learned, you know, and he saw he saw those messengers, right? Like, I think he has a little bit of a different goal, but he's still using the same means and that people being weak and not taking that fight going toe-to-toe with the messengers, which he saw firsthand, and yeah. Cole hasn't quite, you know, he's, he's, he saw, like, one what one was capable of, but he wasn't there where he saw, like, the army of them getting in the machine the way Deacon was, right? Right. So Deacon has seen firsthand how fucking hardcore these messengers were, walking through the hallways, shooting people, killing, like, so he's – it's it's the same lessons, but he it has shifted a little bit that he is fighting like they are for a better world, and I I, I do think that that's a lit like a tiny even though they're taking him to his death, it's a tiny step forward and being like, huh, this is a little bit different than the guy in Atari that was just interested in stealing from people. It's it's a little bit. They're still yeah. going to drive him to his death. But you see, I think that informs where things end up at the end, at least for Cole. Yeah, his path isn't completely aligned with theirs yet either in the sense that he knows that they're going to the past and doing all these things, but that's not something he can contribute to. So he's preparing and attempting to make a better world out of what they have now. Right. He's he, talking he's, about a future from this point, not from like if they succeed or don't succeed. Right. Because he hasn't yet. It's really not like you said, he, cause he's not doing the thing. He's not splintering. So he doesn't understand that aspect of, of what's happening in this brander, in this greater picture. Nor so does he see he, anything changing. Yeah. So. <laughs> So for him, it's like, yeah, it's, it's, I'm trying to make better the world that we're living in here. And it's really not until I think that Deacon actually does start to become involved in that other side of this, that then they start, then he starts to open up and see, oh, so this is, this is what, you know, goes on when you guys splinter and stuff like that. And then also for them to see that Deacon actually is a part of the team. So the one thing I just like, I also, I you know, I, you guys love Deacon so much. I love Deacon. But just to ground the conversation back in the reality from Cole and Ramsey's perspective, Deacon's pissed because Cole wouldn't kill his brother and instead of trying to kill Deacon, left in the middle of the night. <laughs> That's what he's <laughs> mad about. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, like, yeah, because they should have killed Deacon. Uh, like, I would have preferred guys. That. Guys, come like, in and stab me. And <laughs> but that's a bullshit. Away. You know, like I look at. I love Deacon. I, I get that there's a code. 
That's a bullshit reason to be mad. Oh, I'm not saying it's not. I'm just saying that's like the epitome of it. He would rather you come and stab him in the front than what to the walk f- away from Yeah, and then stab him in the back. Exactly. I mean, stab him in the back figuratively rather than stab him for real. Oh, yeah. You're fine with that. <laughs> what? <laughs> no problem. <laughs> the, oh, so here's the one. Um, it works both ways. That's the thing with Deacon. He expects you to stand up and, like, treat you as badly or to to fight you with the same tools that he would fight with. Yeah, I I just wanted, like, I love the dude. He's still, like, a sociopath at this point. (laughs) He is. He's never not one. (laughs) I mean, Um, sure, but like I said, I'd probably be a sociopath in the post-apocalypse, too. (laughs) Same. And I'd be dead. And I'd be dead. Remember me fondly. Um, So here's the the one line, though, that gave me major feels is when Cole says to Deacon, it's called loyalty. I wouldn't expect you to understand the concept. And it's just like, ah, when you think of the Deacon and demons that's going to look at them and be like, I do it again for them. You're just like, oh, man, you have no idea how much this guy fucking understands loyalty. Like, right. I want to throw my phone across the room right now. That's like how, like, because he's, I'm like, you're saying that to one of the most loyal people (laughs) that you will come to find is one of the most loyal. Like, he will give up whatever. Um, and so, Even yeah. Now, but- everything he does is out of loyalty to his brother and his brother's memory. Right. Exactly. It's like that's always kind of been like loyalty has always been a core thing about who Deacon is. Yeah. Oh. Which is also a core a core characteristic of Cole. So it's, you know, it's interesting. Once they can finally get on the same page, that's what makes it like them such a powerful team, right? Like, but right now their loyalties are conflicting. Right. right. <laughs> so that's the crux of the problem. Um, so just taking it forward, you know, they turn him over to the foreman. I mean, it is kind of great. Like, Cole and Ramsey really do. I almost didn't know that they had it in them to play Deacon as well as they do. Like, it's pretty masterful. And and Whitley being in on it, like, it's just, you can you can see why as much as Deacon is like, fuck, he's just like, wow, I really respect that. Yeah, <laughs> really, like, that yeah. was because it was cold-blooded. It was cold-blooded. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the weapons-grade irony is they get rid of Deacon by doing something that is exactly, as Deacon says, something he would do. Right. it was strategic. It was so strategic, like... What there was a line that like Deke like that Ramsey had said like when he was just like you think that we would go out there alone with you when they're right. going to actually kill like get rid of him mm-hmm. and he says that line knowing that mm-hmm. we're the ones who are the danger here <laughs> not yeah. you but we're throwing this in your face like oh you think we want to be alone somewhere with you because you're dangerous you might kill us when they're going to go and essentially kill him. Yeah, it's and so Eklund just bounces in. <laughs> it's so great. So the other line that gives you feelings is Cole's. It's not like we were ever going to work things out over a drink. You're like, oh, buddy. Oh, buddy. <laughs> oh, buddy. <laughs> Cole and Deacon have so many moments over a drink. Like, you know, you have the end of this episode where he's like, go get that bottle. You're going to have the epic um 
naked, let's go save the world <laughs> when when Deacon's going to be drinking that bottle. I mean, you, you have them like fighting um, in the 1980s where Deacon's going to be like needling him about about killing Ramsey. And like you just there's an I think season four. He's there when they're all is he there when they're all sitting there and having the drink before Jo before he and Jones go to Titan? I don't know, but again, to bring in the Deacon and his brother feels like remember like in the, the epilogue in the finale, like him and the bar and his brother in a fight in a bar, you know, and so obviously drinking is something that he and his brother share and do. So the fact that Cole and and Deacon's like connection is drinking together. Aww. Is like another one of those sibling, like it, it's a brotherly sort of thing for mm-hmm. for Deacon. Yeah, just because they don't ever, and and in fact, explicitly, you know, or in the deleted scene or whatever, explicitly state they never would have been brothers. In many many ways, they are. They are, yeah. Like he's such Deacon, such the older, like tougher. I don't always like you, like older brother to Cole. Yeah, like the three of them in the car, as fucked up as the circumstances are. You know, the, like, ribbing back and forth and all of that. Like, you know, it sounds like my husband with his two brothers, right? Like, that. it's just like... Yeah, because though- well, siblings don't always like each other. Like, sometimes right. they straight up hate each other. Like, mm-hmm. but there's still this the, this core there, and that's what they find in each other. Like, the three of them even, like, include Ramsey into this, because, mm-hmm. you know, when we get to the, the finale and that scene, you know, when they're all together, and that West Seven and always ride or die... Like that's it's like bro- yeah, brothers. It's brothers. Arms. It's a brother and yeah, exactly. And going into war together, like so. It would actually be interesting too to look at them from the perspective of sibling order, with Deacon being the oldest, Ramsey in the middle, and Cole being the baby. God, absolutely. <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> there's a lot. There's a lot there. <laughs> yep. Yes. <laughs> yep. As an older sibling, yes. So we have. So when you guys originally watched this, did you think Deacon was gone? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I did. Yeah. Yeah. Like, because you weren't sure, right? Because, you know, the first season he was a guest star. So. Well, because, right? uh, yeah, I I totally thought he was gone because Deacon was a character. I didn't know what they were, how they were going to use him in the story. Like, mm-hmm. I, in, we'll just say, like, at first, to me, like, season one, Deacon almost, I was really, really worried that he was going to be some one-dimensional villain type of character that had all these great quips you know but i thought you know todd's acting because anytime he was on screen it was just electric and i'm like oh you can't really get rid of that but how what are they going to do how are they going to turn him from just this one-dimensional like sociopath and then you know get him on the team and then you know they they bring him in the but he's still obviously it's i think it's this moment was the turning point where i finally like i'm like oh shit they can't get rid of this guy. I see mm-hmm. his value and how he is the counterpoint to Ramsey, which is very important. Like, he's the devil on Cole's shoulder versus Ramsey's being the angel. And I'm like, well, they can't get rid of him. And then all of a sudden this happens and I'm like, well, shit. Like, maybe they didn't know what they were going to do with his character moving forward. And he, like, outlived his usefulness in the story. And then all of a sudden, surprise, bitches. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Very much until the point that he actually, you know, re-enters and you get the idea of like, you know, the 
it's not a huge backstory by any means, but the fact that he recognized the knife of his brother and that's what yeah. motivated him in that. Mm-hmm. Up until that point, you know, even through them handing him over, the depth at which his arc had been presented could very well have just ended there. Yep. And that would have been okay. But they brought him back. I mean, it would not have been okay. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> not for me anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was a logical conclusion at that point. But when they came back, they just made it so much deeper and gave him so many more layers. And and not only that, but it also um, think of how dark that would have made Cole and Ramsey's arcs going forward if they actually did that and and Deacon didn't survive. And they would have had to live and deal with that or throughout they, their process. Or if the story ignored it after and, that. And exactly. But but now that kind of absolves them of this cold-blooded, you know, Deacon-esque thing that they did. And, and Deacon's like, hey, I absolve you of this and let's move on. And it um, also makes it even. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, Deacon, that's... Deacon just did that, right? Deacon just did it to Ramsey. Yep. Ramsey just did it to Deacon. We're even. We're like, even. And again, so brotherly. (laughs) (laughs) But right. You tried to kill me. I tried to kill you. And neither of it didn't work. We're good. But here's here's the the interesting thing is, you know, they they're they're at least on the surface concern about Deacon at the beginning of the episode is this guy is a loose cannon and look how he handles a betrayal or what he perceives as a betrayal and he just shoots people. What he demonstrates at the end of the episode is you know, this is the this is the rational, pragmatic deacon that handed the gun to Whitley. You know, yeah. mm-hmm. like, and so now it it does actually like not only it resolves so many things, like it, like not what they intended at all, but they offered what they ended up doing is they gave Deacon the opportunity to avenge his brother. Yeah, mm-hmm. and. And they also, you know, like, I don't, like, it just, it's so, it allows them to move forward on so many levels, even though the setup is super fucked up. (laughs) You know, it allows, it allows Cole and Ramsey to be like, okay, well, maybe we can work with this guy. (laughs) Even, you know, he is the guy that shot the guy at the beginning of the episode, but if he's willing to move past this, if we just basically cut a deal to not say anything so he can maintain his hold on power, then maybe we can move forward. And it's just, it's super fucked up, but it's interesting how everybody gets a piece of what they were, a piece of something in order to move on. And it all spawns from what Eklund wonderfully refers to as the weapon's great irony, that they <laughs> are treating Deacon the exact same way that they were just like sitting there arguing that that was why he, you know, they needed to get rid of him because of yeah. the way that he does things. And they're like, well, I guess we'll just do the same thing. Too. And then Deacon walking in and proving that and... Hey, I don't always just kill everyone who betrays me. How much do you want that scene? I can't tell you how how much I would just die to see the scene of how he actually, like his facial expressions and him going bonkers whenever he realized the foreman had his brother's knife. Yeah. Well, he doesn't the foreman hold it up? I thought that that's Does he his. Hold it up? He holds up that knife, that knife that's got like the etchings on the handle. The foreman holds it up, and I thought that's why Deacon's face is like. You know, like... Oh, fuck. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause I actually thought like that's a moment where the foreman made a big fucking mistake. He's holding that knife up to taunt him. And that's what gave Deacon I the mean, motivation to go ape shit on three guys. No, I would I fucking give anything to see that scene, though. Yeah. That's yeah. what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I just like to see how he actually gets away. Exactly. How did he do that? And look, he's, he, I mean, he is just dripping in blood. Like, so that was just intense. Whatever he just went through was fucking intense. Yeah. Because a good portion of that is clearly not his. <laughs> exactly. Damn. Oh, Deacon gets, I mean, between this and the jail, like the scene where he gets stitched up in the beginning of season three, um, after he has all the stab wounds, it's just like, God, his body goes through. Like, holy shit. <laughs> like, like, he's like a cat with many lives. Like, mm-hmm. Jesus. It's kind of, um, not ominous per se, almost a little bit sinister though, how he hands the belt of knives to Ramsey. Right. Because it almost, like, conveys this message of, like, you can have all the weapons you want. It didn't do them any good. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm here to stay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's (laughs) also fascinating because in a couple episodes, Ramsey's is going to be the one that betrays Cole and Deacon's going to be the one that aligns with him. So it's just, you know, anytime you're watching one of these scenes and you're watching these characters realign and then you think about how many different iterations that's going to go through (laughs) before they get to the end, you're just like, oh, man. (laughs) Um, Are you guys ready to go to 2016? Let's do it. I think so. So before we get into Olivia, the Olivia of this episode, I just wanted to give Amy an opportunity. (laughs) I'm going to say... Tom Noonan. <laughs> Tom <Go>. Noonan! <laughs> Go. <laughs> Tom fucking Noonan. Like, I don't know when I found out that his character's name was Pallid Man, but I, anytime he came on screen, I was like, Tom fucking Noonan. There's Tom Noonan. <laughs> like, guys, I don't think you understand how good of an actor Tom Noonan is. And I implore everyone listening to watch Michael Mann's Manhunter. If have you two seen it? No, no. Do you know what it is? Like, do you? It's Han. It's Hannibal. It's in the same family as like Hannibal Lecter. Did you ever see Red Dragon with um, Ray Fiennes? Yes. And Ed Norton. And Ed Norton. Yes. Okay. It's it's the same story except told. It was the first. Like that's basically a remake remake yeah. um so he plays uh tom noonan played the uh francis dollyard character Ooh, and yes yes so <laughs> <laughs> it's so good because there's this scene in it because there's something about tom noonan's ability to portray both like a soft a softness in his character like you can see where he's like oh fatherly almost like there's a softness to how he speaks but yet there's like this steely sociopathic vibe <laughs> that scares the shit out of you at the same time but the mm-hmm. softness makes him more scary yeah it's very sinister so like especially in like manhunter because of the character he plays like he because he falls in love with the the blind woman right right and he truly cares and but he's dealing with this demon inside and so there's like these real moments of like tenderness but then the moment he feels betrayed, how quickly he can make that turn to, like, soft and loving to psycho is, like, it's an acting spectacle to behold. <laughs> it is just amazing. And there's, like, this scene in um, Manhunter where he's, uh, I can't think of the song, Inagata Davida, that song. 
And it's like this really surreal, like acid trip of, of a scene, which like the house is on fire. There's murder happening. And he's like, and he, he's big in stature, obviously. Like, what is he like? Six, six, um, Tom Noonan. Like he's, he's a tall fucking man. And it's just, oh, Tina, you have to see it. It's on Tina's list of things she has to see. I don't know. I'm still fucked up over the um, the Ed Norton version where it's like the family is all lined up and dead in the bedroom. I, I just, I, I it's oh, kind guys. of it's, it's a little bit because it was like, God, when did they? When was that movie? Late eighties, early nineties. Um, it's it's a little bit more like stylized in a way that it's not as as. Stylized families getting murdered. <laughs> <laughs> they still laid them out thing. really, really pretty, and <laughs> still not my thing, Amy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's it's less like overt as like the Red Dragon version is, where like the shock value is meant to like it's it's more subtle. It's it's more of a subtle murder, Tina. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you okay. know, subtle murders. That category. <laughs> it's. It's done in that real late 80s style of murder. It's really <laughs> awesome, okay? <laughs> okay, so uh, we opened up 2016 with Olivia. And I went back and actually, like, what's really fun to do is watch the Olivia se- some of the Olivia scenes in 45 RPM, where we get her backstory about when she was first brought to the Monkey Mansion. Because it's almost... When she walks up and takes the robe off and you see the – it's Aramaic, right? The symbol of – the Titan symbol of 12 on her back. 45 RPM, you see the moment where she's branded. Do you guys remember that? Yeah. And she drinks the tea for the first time. And it's almost shot for shot like her – with her face and the red droplets coming down. It's It's – and now you, I just totally thought of that. It's really fun to like go watch those scenes in 45 RPM now. Because I think this is, I was trying to think about it. Is this the last time she drinks the tea seeking guidance from the witness? Like this is a big turning point. Like she'll drink the tea to try and locate, um, Ethan in mm-hmm. at the end of season three, but this is the last time she's in the House of Cedar and Pine that we see her like seeking orders from the witness. I think it might be because I think this well because this is clearly the turning point in which she stops believing in the witness and starts believing in herself. Right, um, and so I think what's so such an amazing mindfuck now is. With Olivia, 2016 Olivia, standing in that house and knowing that it is the future version of herself setting her on this path that's going to end the day broken at the bottom of that pool. And it's something that she knows that she has to, you know, put herself on that path to get where she is as the witness. Um so just sort of the messages. She's such a sadist. I know. I was going to say, like, She's that Olivia probably enjoyed doing that to herself. I mean, old Jennifer puts herself through the ringer, too. It, it, yeah. it makes both of them stronger, right? It makes them who they will be in the future. I mean, if it's really fun to think of this episode almost as old Jennifer and Olivia Witness playing a chess game. Mm-hmm. In the past, I think right? this is the first blatantly obvious time too from people who would have, you know, would have already known what happened. That you have like a closed causality loop, 
Like, yeah. last time, you know, they went to 1944 because they saw a picture. But, like, they don't know what happens there. But both Olivia, you know, future Olivia and future Jennifer know exactly what's going to happen. Yeah. And they send people back or put people what they're going to go through because it already happened. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, if we just go through the messages, I mean, it is really interesting to consider the symbolism of the House of Cedar and Pine and Olivia – you know, because in season three, you think that the reason why all of this is important is because Ethan is the witness. And so when you learn Olivia is the witness, it's almost like you have to kind of reshuffle. Why is she using the House of Cedar and Pine? Why is that right? Like the, and it's because all of these people that, you know, that, that they are in this loop and that's what's going to get her to become the witness. Mm-hmm. It's funny. Like, I actually, somebody asked, like, well, then why is the House of Cedar and Pine important if Olivia is the one who's ultimately the witness? Um, but it is this loop, like the loop, right? That she has to get, she needs all of these things to happen. Yeah, it's, it's a part of, she needs these pieces to move in this way. So that's the place that she has to get all these pieces to move. Mm-hmm. So she has right. to use that. So if we just kind of walk through what future Olivia scrawls on the wall, her messages. So 2016 Olivia walks in. We see 1957 through 9, this was home, which now you're like, oh, my God, right? Like, we know that moment and that that is co-opting something that Cole writes Mm -hmm. about that place. Um, And then she talks about prepare Cassandra. Um, because that's how she's going to, through getting into Cassie's head, get into the facility and all mm-hmm. that flows from that. What I think is interesting is when 2016 Olivia is having such a crisis of faith because things are changing, future Olivia says time evolves, which is exactly the same thing old Jennifer was trying to explain to Jones. Yeah. Um, And then... The, why can't we just kill her? The no, 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 no. It's like, what were they trying to say there? Yeah. Did they really mean it? Um, But, you know, now you just, now that we know the end of the story, right? Like in season three, again, we thought that that was about Ethan needing to be born. Yeah. And now it's no, because Olivia needs this almost like, what's the right word? Ruse of, of using Ethan as a front and the, and the pallid man and all that goes with that, that she's setting him up for like the yeah. fall and being mm-hmm. able to take over. Um, it's just sort of like, you thought it meant, you didn't know what it meant in season two. You thought you knew what it meant in season three. And, and we didn't. <laughs> so you have to, like, rethink all I mean, of it. it was some epic 3D chess that Olivia was playing here. Yes. Because like, she was, like, really, like, hey, all these little moves need to happen for me to achieve, like, this ultimate goal. Which is that the, the irony being, though, that needing Cassie alive and needing Cassie is such an important part in Olivia's journey to get to where Olivia is that Cassie ends up being the person who ends that. <laughs> or does she? <laughs> Sorry. Well, I mean, when she went to the Himalayas one way or the other. Right. I mean, yeah. what's interesting is the next, you know, and I don't mean to like, uh, we all three of us are on the same page about what we think Cassie ultimately did. But 
if you're not, and you think that they are in the Red Forest at the end, this moment of prepare Cassandra and the way the wit, the, the opening argument about why the Red Force would be a good thing is going to happen to Cassie is going to happen in the next episode when like Ghost Aaron is talking to her and explaining the Red Forest and Cassie's like kind of overcome with emotion and is and tells Jennifer like you know it sounds almost beautiful right that's the opening argument so whether you think that that ultimately leads to Cassie triumphantly shutting it down or accepting it this is all an important moment and part I mean it's just kind of interesting when you try and Piece, put this, like, reconsider what these moments are now that we know how it ends, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so then we have, like, you know, the, just to bring it back to sibling rivalries, Olivia and the Pallid Man won his, like, absolute blind faith versus her crisis of faith. But this is, like, the apex of their, or we think it's the apex of their power struggle. Yeah. Um, and, it's fascinating now, and we'll get to it at the end, how this is all – she's taking – like, future Olivia is going to take everything he's saying and use it to manipulate him at the end to get her to do what he wa- – like, get him to do what she wants. Um, oh, she's but- totally using his face and his ego, like, simultaneously yes. to put him in the position that he needs to be to both get rid of him and then have him do all the dirty work for her, essentially. Yeah. I mean, we spent a lot, like, we ended up jumping ahead and we spent a lot of time talking about the, the different ways that Olivia and at this point and the Pallet Man approach their faith and sort of the crisis of that. Um, I do love Tom Noonan's performance. Like, he has that little, like, is he like playing with the flame of the candle? Like, he's just yeah. like has all these little mannerisms, like, oh, Tom they're- fucking Noonan. Tina. <laughs> I know. <laughs> okay. So that brings us to. Jennifer in 2016 and that montage. This montage is set to a Joan Jett and the Blackhearts 1996 cover of the theme song to the Mary Tyler Moore show, Love is All Around. And I didn't realize it when I first watched it, but this time around when I heard You're Gonna Make It After All, I was like, wait a second, is this the Mary Tyler? Like, oh my God. And that whole montage, if you haven't, if you're like, for like listeners, go and Google like the various versions of the opening montage of the Mary Tyler Moore show because this whole, these snapshots of Jennifer like walking through the city, looking in the store window, the like pet adoption flyer, the clear Mm -hmm. dome, like bubble umbrella, All of it is Jennifer playing another role. Mm -hmm. It's like using her pop culture filter of what a successful independent woman living on her own in a city should look like. Um, But it's clear from like the repetition of taking the meds and sort of her facial expressions and all of it that, you know, it's still playing a role. Like she's not – yeah, I mean, it's which is really like as kind of poppy and fun as that montage is. It also, it's kind of like the cycle of taking the meds and feeling numb, and it's like she's because really do they herself. do they edit cut like her taking the meds in that montage? I can't remember yes. it. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah, okay, right. So yes, <laughs> and it's so interesting because it's like if you think about that kind of montage of this is what an independent woman's life should look like, right? It's like, mm-hmm. it, that stretches through pop culture. Like, you've got the Mary Tyler Moore and then you've got, like, Carrie Bradshaw in the beginning yeah. of, like, Sex in the City, right? It's yep. like this, this is what you should, this is what a successful independent woman 
living her life on her own in a city. This is what it should look like, right? Um, the lyrics to the song are so perfect. It like makes my heart hurt. It's like, how will you make it on your own? The world is awfully big. Girl, this time you're all alone. Um, it's like, love is all around. You're going to make it after all. And it's like, she's so alone. Okay, <laughs> like, I just thought of something. Yeah. <laughs> about this. Yeah. About this is her idealized version of what it takes to be an independent woman living alone in a city. But then when she goes to Paris, she actually does it without the mm-hmm. drugs and herself mm-hmm. and his having to make it on her own and lives and lives a life. Yeah. Like, man, I just gave myself a little bit feels about Jennifer about that. <laughs> no, that's such a good point. And she'll be, she's, pl- but she'll be, pl- she'll be doing that by playing roles. Yeah. Right? Like she's well, always because playing that's, a role. That's an essence of who she is. That's, it's, that's not just her trying to control her crazy sometimes. That's just who, I mean, I'm a pop culture weirdo too. And that's kind of a part of her personality. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a part of had, how she just gets deals with life in general, which is not necessarily bad. That and playlist. <laughs> yep, amen. <laughs> All right, that was a great detail. So her playlist name, because, you know, she's got the we're all going to die, right, playlist in the finale. This playlist is feel good. <laughs> feel good. Also, there's some great little details, like the post-it note she has on the mirror says, I let go of the past. I write my own future. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, you kind of oh, don't, though. <laughs> you kind, well, you do and you don't. You, yeah, it's both. This, right? This old Jennifer is like the guardian of making sure the past stays the way that it went. But she is going to rewrite the future, right? <laughs> with mm-hmm. the choices she makes. There's just some great layers to that. Um, she just totally got those like affirmations, though, from like a self help book. And, like, has some posted <laughs> everywhere. Or, like, group therapy or whatever. Right. I mean, the thing that's so sad about this is there's this cycle of taking the pills and the numbness. And, I, you know, I think it's an – there's a lot to unpack there. I think it's a really important distinction that Jennifer is not mentally ill. So these pills are, like, ultimately, it's a gift, these visions. It's mm-hmm. not the same as, like – someone in our world, right, that's suffering from mental illness and taking medication, although there might be, you know, some parallels to how that sometimes makes you feel. One of the things that kind of, I don't know that concern is the right word. One of the things that just stuck out to me is it appeared as though she was just like taking those meds whenever she felt like it. Right. Like like when she needed it. Yeah. Whatever. And there's nothing in the type of meds that she's taking that's okay about that. No. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. So that could, that kind of like pinged something with me a little bit. I was like, oh no, you can't do yeah, that. Yeah, the like, what she's taking she, is not like popping a, a Xanax. Yeah, she would <laughs> right. be like OD'd at that right. point. And the interesting, I mean, the the thing that makes, you know, regard no matter what she takes, she'll explain to Cassie later, but we see in this montage, she can't escape that vision of her mother. Right, right. All the other voices are quiet, but her mom is still prevalent there. Right. Which is interesting because, you know, that that one little tidbit that will never go away is what sets her on her path to, like, understanding and, and 
kind of embracing the visions of becoming who she really is. Like that one thing that maybe time wouldn't let that go. You know what I mean? Maybe that was like her last strand or her last connection at time, you know, as the primary where it's like, you know, you have to keep this thing until we figure it out. Right. I mean, then we see sort of uh, she's got, you know, meeting meeting her friends for drinks, which seems like such a, you know – single girl living in the city, sex in the city kind of thing to do, except poor Jennifer's version is she's going to this really shitty hotel in 2016 where the glasses aren't even clean with friends who are fake that are at least Stacy is part of the army of the 12 monkeys. But, you know, we, we, they give us a lot of information very elegantly and quickly that she has been talking about coal in group um, they think of it as like, oh, that otter, that otter guy, <laughs> otterized guy that you're stalking. <laughs> um, and she has that great scene with Don, who works at the hotel, who clearly has a huge crush on her, but she's like oblivious. Um, and that she is freak, like coming back to this hotel constantly trying to find out if Cole's returned to 607. And her excitement when he says the resident is there is like, heartbreaking right like he's her only true friend right now in the world well which really when you juxtapose that with the whole montage because you're thinking through the montage like oh like she seems happy like oh she's living her life but then as that unfolds like you said with her friends and stuff like that we see that she's still clinging on to the coal that she's still clinging on to that primary self like even with the drugs it's not Mm -hmm. It's not keeping her – her destiny is still finding a way to seep through all right. of that. And she still wants it because the moment that you said we see that smile on her face and stuff is, oh, hey, the guest from 607 is upstairs. So that brings us to the crushing realization that it is not Cole. It is Cassie who is being so like <sighs> – the, the the journey that Cassie and Jennifer go on in this episode is amazing because in this moment, Cassie's being so fake nice to Jennifer and the sorry Cole couldn't make it it's is so like, it's not, yeah, it's not even like, it, it's not even nice. It's no, no. like, it's like, oh, you could just see that she's like gritting her teeth while talking to Jennifer like, oh, yeah, it's me. Bitch. And also, like, getting her jabs in, you know, everywhere she can. Yeah. So, I mean, but, I mean, the other part that's hilarious about this is old Jennifer did this to herself. (laughs) Right? Like, I mean, or or it already happened, right? It makes my brain Mm -hmm. hurt. But so much of this, right? It's like... Old Jennifer knows that her old self was hoping to see Cole. Instead, Cassie shows up, and then they almost get killed, and Cassie beats the shit out of it. Like, old Jennifer knew all of this was going on, right? Like, later on when it was like, you were my source. It's just like, when you have in your mind the whole time that all of this is going down and nobody gave any warning to them, right? And they just were marching into this blindly. You're just like, ah. Um, There's a lot, you know, I think it's... It shows, like, you know, this Jennifer that has been in, has spent this time on her own and has spent it in therapy, You, she has made some strides, particularly in, in recognizing sort of that, you know, when her father had her locked up, that, that all of that was, 
you know, being done to her and not helping her. She's able to recognize manipulation, whether it's from Cassie or from Olivia. Um, you know, it's, it's still like not a great place because she's still not. But clearly the therapy was helping her. Like, cause yeah. she was talking through some issues, obviously about family issues and things like that. So. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, we get sort of the first inkling that, I mean, we heard from Tommy that Tommy knew who Jennifer was, but when Cassie tells Jennifer that Tommy was paradoxed and she's like, so saddened like poor Tommy or later when she says she knows Kyle's a New Yorker because she hears his voice Mm -hmm. it's building that mythology of letting us know more about those voices right that all these primaries yeah yeah, they're they're actual people people. yeah yeah um and I also just love the like there's so much subtle like when Stacy falls two stories down into the lobby Don like barely looks up (laughs) (laughs) Like, that's just another Tuesday at the Emerson. (laughs) He just keeps moving on. (laughs) So that takes us to the car ride. Um, Beep, do you – you love this scene so much. Do you want to walk us through it? (laughs) I do. They're quips back and forth at at each other. And, like, I I feel like – I don't even want to say this in a way that makes Cassie sound, like, bad. But she's just – she feels so superior to Jennifer mm-hmm. and she treats her like she's a child, which in some ways, I mean, some ways Jennifer is yeah. and in some ways she never loses that, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but you're basically dealing with like a petulant, you know, <laughs> a petulant little girl who like could be throwing a tantrum at any time she wants to. And, and Cassie is also obviously super pissed because, you know, five seconds ago she was, trying to kill Jennifer because Jennifer's, you know, obviously trying to stop the world. And then there's also that contention between, you know, with Cole being in the middle and like choosing one over the other, which everyone in the show seems to get upset about at some, some point. Mm -hmm. But it's also old. I mean, you would be super frustrated right now if you were Cassie and old Jennifer demanded that you be the one to travel to the past to find out about the primaries from Jennifer's, young Jennifer's visions and you get there and Jennifer's like, I'm not having any visions. You're like, why the fuck am I here? Oh yeah. She's so, <laughs> so he's so and, pissed. And she also got this mission like what secondhand because she hasn't talked to old Jennifer. No. Right. Yeah. Like Cole came back and was like, mm, sorry, it's you that has to go. And she's like, excuse me. Yeah. And she doesn't have like a really great relationship with Cole right now either. So Right. And she's like, you know, the whole like, you should, you should check your sources. You were my source. Like, why are we here? Right. You're, she's mad at two Jennifer. She's mad at the Jennifer in front of her and she's mad at the Jennifer in the future that sent her here. Right. Like, why is she here? And I but think at this point, Cassie's just like mad in general. She's still like mm-hmm. holding on to so much anger. And it's just like Jennifer's just an easy person for her to kind of vent to because she doesn't also want to vent it at Cole so much. But a lot of it, Cassie's anger is is not just about Jennifer. Like it's yeah, this it's is about the whole situation. This is still a Cassie who's like massively mission oriented. So yeah, like, we're not getting results. If nothing's happening, then like why am I wasting time? Why am I traveling through time? Like and especially with you, <laughs> like right? Is she is she so clinical? And I mean, there's like it's like 
it's like the worst combination of Dr. Cassie and mission-focused Cassie, where Jennifer, she's not seeing Jennifer as a person, right? She's a means to an end. The way she's talking about her medication, right? The way she's like, okay, then we need a trigger. Like, what the fuck? You're talking to a person. I know. That was so, uh, that, oh, man. Right? That made me cringe because I'm just like, oh, my God. You're talking about like, oh, we need to bring up like this one thing that has fucked you up your entire life. And, and mm-hmm. we need you to go in that moment. <laughs> Right. But this journey, I mean, they both go on such a journey because the time that, that Cassie's going to spend with Jennifer, she's going to show so much vulner. She's going to show as much vulnerability and emotion as Jennifer does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When you take this and the next episode put together, they're going to be, ta- they are both going to take care of each other. Right. So like right now, Cassie's being so superior, but they're both going to show vulnerability. They're both going to care for one another, whether it's helping Cassie out of the bath when she can barely walk on her own or caring for or Cassie caring for Jennifer when she has a concussion. So it's just like it starts like this. And it's (laughs) such a journey for these two characters just in two episodes to where they end up in their friendship. Um, But also just like an. Not only great line note, but also an acting note. Jennifer's uh, maybe every version of me thinks you're kind of a bitch. <laughs> so Emily's delivery of that, and yep. then also the immediate cut to Amanda Schultz's face. <laughs> <laughs> so great. Her reaction to that is priceless. It's just like, this again. you know? <laughs> it's so great. But so- they're both in the same place in this weird kind of way, because... Cassie is currently unable to be vulnerable. She has no, you know, and that's in every area of her life. And it's certainly not something she wants to do with Jennifer. But also, if you look at it from Jennifer's point of view, ever since the moment Cassie saw her, even back, you know, to the night room, like, she has been pretty freaking awful to her. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Even before, you know, they, they thought she was part of the plague. Like, Cassie has always been, like, super short and... And even clinical in that way of like, I don't have time for your crazy right now. You know what I mean? Like just brushing it all aside. Which I'm not saying is not understandable. I'm just saying looking from her perspective, like you never have, you know, listened to a word I said. You're just constantly like berating me. Wait, you're talking about Cassie to Jennifer? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, but Jennifer was a total bitch to her too. Like Cassie showed up. She's like, who's this bitch? And and like, right? Like they they both were – pretty terrible to each other <laughs> in season one i right? keep thinking of poor cole in both of these situations in this whole episode in both of these situations he has like kind of people not fighting over him but he's got these like he's got on one side deacon and ramsey and mm-hmm. then like back and forth at each other through cole and then here on this other end of the spectrum he's also has jennifer and Cassie in the same sort of dynamic through mm-hmm. him that he right. just bounces back and forth. And so right. the fact that this episode, it mirrors both of those dynamics just perfectly is just one of the brilliant aspects about this episode that I love. Right. I mean, the other thing that's great is this is the first inkling in this car ride when Cassie tells Jennifer, you were my source. She she now understands, you know, her surprise at that, it means she doesn't realize that a future version of herself is talking to Cole or to Cassie and is involved in this mission, right? And so in this in this episode, she's going to end it not only knowing the day that she dies, but knowing that a future version of herself is working with, you know, Team Splinter. So Yeah, and that also that she's still alive. Yeah, yeah. She doesn't know that she's immune to the plague. I mean, right? I don't think she would. 
at this point have any reason to know that. Right? Yeah, right. Yeah. So it yeah, it's also getting an idea like I'm still alive. I have a I have a part to play in this bigger picture in decades into the future. So, yeah. I think that brings us to uh their their when they stop the car and have a conversation outside the rest stop. Um and Cassie goes through her medications. Um do you yeah. guys want to walk through those? I, I have a couple of thoughts on this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I will say, let me start by saying, in case it was not obvious, I am not a doctor. <laughs> 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 However, I do have very unfortunate <laughs> experiences with a, with some of these things. And, you know, just like certain details stick out to some people, certain details stick out to others and the list of these drugs. So... Um, all three of them, Clozapine, Risperdal, and Abilify, were originally designed to treat schizophrenia. And they are all under the branch of um, antipsychotics, atypical second-generation antipsychotics. Um, am I right about that, Amy? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, first of all, <laughs> the idea that someone would be taking all three of these, like, blew my mind. These, that is a serious combination of drugs right there. Um, I also am not sure someone would be taking all three of them. Yeah, because they are in the same (laughs) class and it's kind of redundant. Um, However, so uh, the clozapine is for treatment resistant schizophrenia, which, which may indicate in theory that she was put on that one last. Because that might be like, oh, well, this other thing like isn't quite working. Um, let's try to, you know, uh, kind of <laughs> dope you up even more a little bit here. But the, this set of drugs is interesting to me because in many, many cases, drugs that are uh, developed to treat schizophrenia, they've had this strange uh, kind of offset slash phenomenon where they go well with certain individuals who have bipolar disorder and they're often used to treat that as well though they were not designed for that disease um i can say just i mean from a personal standpoint that i have no problem admitting i have bipolar disorder so i have direct um, experience with this with the second two with respiratory and abilify i did not take them um simultaneously, which again is why I kind of thought that was weird. Mm -hmm. But maybe, you know, from a schizophrenia perspective or from a severity perspective, that's something that occurs. I did not look that up. Those medications are hard fucking core. Mm -hmm. They, um, in my personal experience, and like, yay for meds that work for people. Like, maybe that's your med. Maybe somebody happens to be listening and they're like, oh my god, Abilify changed my life. Good for you. There's a bajillion different meds because some things work for some people and, you know... Some don't work for others. Now, one of the things I find interesting is them being all in the same class. Often, like, if one of them doesn't work for you, the other ones will not either. Both of these particular medications, uh, Abilify more than Risperdal, actually caused suicidal tendencies in me. Like, that were not present before I was taking these drugs. So, what's interesting to me is though you made the point earlier, Tina, it's it's very, very true that Jennifer is not mentally ill. It kind of makes me wonder, like, are they trying to say 
that, yes, this numbs the primary stuff, but I almost think, like, some bonkers shit would be happening to her. Yeah. Yeah. Did you get that impression, too, Amy? Like, I would be, like, massively concerned that someone's not mentally ill is taking these drugs. Right. Well, because if 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 they... If they hadn't have named the drugs that she was taking, I would have been more willing to, like, kind of gloss it over, like, oh, she's just taking your basic, like, antidepressants or, yeah. you know, wh- whatever. That she's a nice, popping Xanax. Yeah, a nice cocktail of maybe, or, or a lower level, like, antipsychotic or things like lithium and, and, and stuff like that. But the fact that they named such high-powered antipsychotic, like, prescriptions, I was less like... And, and the fact that we know that she's not mentally ill, like, this would have a different effect than what they're portraying was the only thing that maybe I was a little skittish on. Because, like you're saying, the like, there would be some different ramifications for someone who isn't uh, as mentally ill as someone would be to be taking Respiradol or Abilify uh like, and popping them at how she was, like, literally, like, at random, like, down the street, like, oh, I see a vision, time to pop the Abilify, I guess, uh, that there wouldn't, there would be some other, like, repercussions there as far as how she interacts with people and yeah. herself. Those are very much not as needed drugs. No. <laughs> Those are very much, Those are like, times. You take Those it, are very yeah, times. You take it at drugs. this time. Even one of them said, um, I don't, I don't often pause to see things, but, but before I remembered they said the names, I was actually pausing to see if you could see any of the labels. And she did have generics, which like good on Jennifer. Doesn't matter how much money you have. Like you get that generic girl, but, <laughs> <laughs> but one of the meds on the side said like take with food and she's just popping those things like they're candy. Yeah. Down the street. And I was like, uh, and maybe they didn't, you know, I, I'm not calling them out for anything. This is just something that's very, very personal to me. Yeah. And I don't think in that way that this particular cocktail was necessarily a, like, a good demonstration. Exactly for the reason you said, Amy, because they named them. If they hadn't, it would have been like, okay, you know. Yeah. You're, you're, there would have been a lot of things that I would have assumed she was taking that yeah. are not the drugs she is taking. And. Yeah. Uh, I, I just think there would be a massive ramification um, for someone who's not mentally ill taking them, especially knowing how they can affect people that are mentally, mentally ill. Right. Like, that, this isn't like popping a Xanax. It's not anywhere close to what popping a Xanax is, or yeah. even like your basic lower level, like, like even like a Wellbutrin or, or whatever. Like, this is, these are serious brain medications. Yeah, and yeah. it's not like when people start taking Adderall because they want to stay up, like, and it affects them differently because they're yeah. not ADD. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's not the kind of thing that is not highly regulated. It's not the kind of thing that you just decide on your own, that you change doses on. I will say later in the episode, and, and we'll kind of get there, but maybe not even have to address it at that time, the idea that Cassie was just going to, like, stop her on them, <laughs> like, no. gave me, I mean, I got squirmy yeah, in my chair. That gave me a panic attack. Exactly. Because you don't stop You don't cold meds. turkey. You, have you to- do not do that. Like, the what would happen to you from doing that is, like, you don't want to know. And, yes, that can take a couple days in sometimes. And so that was, like, another thing that kind of got me. She's like, oh, well, we'll just stop it and you'll see the visions. Like, hmm. that's not going to happen, like, two hours from now. Right. <laughs> like, and, that, I- and that physically puts her in danger. Like, that's your 
putting her in danger, the come down when you do that, like that's that's a that's not just a mental danger that you're putting in. You're putting her in a physical danger. Yeah, I think so I think one of the two like interesting things that and my my sister who's disabled and has a lot of other mental illness issues, she's been on Respital and Abilify and they both had Oh, like harrowing side effects. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think there's like two pieces. There is a real world when people are watching the show and you are, they're not portraying, like they're not portraying mental illness, right? Right. Jennifer is not mentally ill. And in the real world, there are people who take these drugs and have experiences with them, right? And so there's that piece of it. Within the world of the show, they've gone out of their way and will continue to do so to portray that the minds of primaries are not like anything that we've ever seen or could understand, like in our real world, if that makes sense. So, totally. So, you can hand wave it away. No, yeah, no, I'm saying, like, so it's interesting, like, actually, like, it's interesting, like, the fact that she's taking all three of those drugs. Maybe that is an in, actually like an indication of how strong these visions are, right? That you have to take three of them and she's still seeing things, right? Like, and she's still popping them, right? And, and so she's not using them in a way that like somebody in the real world would use them. They're still not working. It's actually like a clue as to how powerful these visions and a primary's brain and in particular Jennifer, right? Like we will go on to learn that Jennifer is a very special primary. Um, No, I can totally buy all of that. My kind of little sidetrack here, it's not even necessarily, it's not, I'm not trying to say, look at what they did wrong. Oh, not at all. This is just something that resonates with me, you know, because it's so very personal and it's so very real. Like you said, to a lot of people watching. Yeah, you're talking about real world implications here. And to me, this is maybe kind of a weird comparison, but it's almost like when, you know, you have the argument of like people never understood Ramsey's deal of just Mm -hmm. all of a sudden being like, I'm going to blow up the world for my son because you don't have kids. Right. You know, because they're like, he he just met him. Who cares? But if if you're a parent, it's different. Well, and, you know, to me in this way, it's like, okay, you know, you don't you don't have mental illness. Like, okay, great. She's popping pills and like, this isn't working. We know she's not mentally ill. It's no big deal. Like, fine. And again, I'm totally fine in the context of the show that you could absolutely hand wave it away in the sense that you can say, yes, because she's primary, her brain is structured completely differently. It's just, I think personally, I would have preferred not to have the names of I these agree. pills. I agree. The other the other thing is, you know, my there were two things that struck me again, you know, you have it within the world of the show and then when the audience is sitting at home and it touches on things that we experience in the real world, right? And this happens all the time. Like the example you just gave, right? I'm sitting there as a parent watching scenes with Ramsey, et cetera. It, it comes in all different forms. Sure. There are two as as the daughter of someone who is bipolar. There were two scenes that hit home for me. The first was the portrayal of taking the drugs as this kind of numbing cycle. 
Mm-hmm. Because that's something that my mom talks about all the time with taking lithium, right? I, I feel numb. Mm-hmm. I feel like I can't, you know, it's a lot better than how she felt before, but, but there's, it feels like a, like a cycle of numbness. That hit home. Everything when, is muted. Your feelings are just muted. Yeah. It's, col- when, you're col- it's colorless. That's how I would mm-hmm. always think of it when I try to describe it. Like everything becomes sepia toned. Um, like you're living a, a sepia toned kind of bland, blandness that is void of joy or pain so i mean like the good aspect is oh it's dulling whatever the pain was that i was feeling inside but at the same time i also can't experience the happier side of this right and there's something about that montage that even though it's using this kind of like you know hard driving joan jet song and it's it's subverting in a way that Mary Tyler Moore opening sequence because it's clear that Jennifer is not really feeling that way. Oh no, right? she's not happy at all. Like her, she the the smile is fake. It, mm-hmm. It's increasingly like over the top and try, right. So there's something about that cycle of taking the drugs and all of that 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 is that even the way the montage is put together and her acting makes you feel this kind of unsettled. Right, like, so it made me think of that. The other line that just, like, bowled me over, you have no idea how exhausting it is being crazy. And that is something that, like, my mother has said to me, like, mm-hmm. about how, right? And I don't mean to, like, I know that you have a lot more thoughts about this, but, th- and I, like, please go ahead. But it's something that it, it was just, like, it made me cry because I've heard my mother has said that, you know? it. So there's within the world of the show – and then there's very real world, the, the issues they're talking about and, and how that makes us feel, right? Sure. No, absolutely. And I, I think that even though, and I don't mean to be repetitive, but they've definitely, you know, it, it becomes much clearer even the more, you know, the further we go that Jennifer's not mentally ill, like, obviously. Even, right. even in this episode, I mean, they get to the point, you know, where she's like, no, my mom wasn't primary. Like, she was literally, you know, she was sick, and I'm not kind of thing. Mm-hmm. They said there there are a lot of parallel portrayals to that. And so, for someone with that mental illness, it does give a different weight to the idea of what a primary is. It also, in a strange way, um, kind of, and this is, this is truly real world, nobody's fault, I think gives a little bit of... Um, of, I want to say this correctly, kind of a, a doldrum feeling um, emptiness of thinking like her crazy had a purpose and mine doesn't. Yeah, I can see that. Okay, I'm going to go cry now. <laughs> like, sweetie. No, like, I think and- it takes so, it's so brave to even be talking like, you know, it. the, the, the other thing I take away from it is watching the way people treat her because they think she's mentally ill yeah is so really allows people to i mean that's one of the ways that art can be so powerful is it allows you to put yourself in someone's shoes when you haven't walked in them and so when you watch jennifer and whether it's you know and this isn't like coming down on any of the characters right this is there's many reasons why they're coming at it, but when you watch the way Cassie's treating her mm-hmm. or the way that the world, how lost she feels and how people write off the things she says because she's crazy or they lock her up, like, right, it goes to a lot of extremes, but even the day-to-day interactions of her friends being annoyed with her, right, and all of those things, like, it lets you 
it, it lets you see from another point of view what it must be like to be treated like that because your brain is working differently than someone else. Well, I, and I think this episode allows the audience to start more to sympathize with what Jennifer goes through her entire life. Um, yeah. And, and at the same time, Cassie is like Cassie's kind of mirroring like, because there are probably times I'm going to imagine that the audience is also frustrated, you know, with Jennifer in season one and moving forward, like the, the crazy, like some in, in many ways, Cassie is the audience insert there mm-hmm. in dealing with it. And so in this episode, once we start to get a bigger picture of Jennifer's backstory with her mother and mm-hmm. knowing how long she's been doing these drawings, like how long like this has affected her and how her own mother was treating her. And then the fact that her mother was, was mentally ill, like you see this, like this, this whole journey and how the whole world, including her parents who are supposed to love her, have treated her. And so we all sort of finally get a full sense of, of empathy towards Jennifer in this moment. Mm-hmm. And all of that can also be representative of um, the stigma of mental illness in the sense mm-hmm. that like yeah. Jennifer has been suffering her entire life. Yep. Mm-hmm. Whether you want to call it mental illness or not, they're, they're showing the signs of that. Yeah. Well, she all, and she also suffered as the misunderstanding of her mind, but she also, you know, I, I don't want, like, I don't mean to jump ahead, but she also was the daughter of someone who actually was mentally yeah. ill. Mm-hmm. She suffered at the hands well, of someone who was also, and, like, not treated per se. But but right. my point is that it it is in some ways representative of of the isolation mm-hmm. that that can occur to anyone who's who's mentally ill. Not even because you necessarily portray it i mean there's most most people i know at least and i'll only speak for myself people at work people i run into people casually you would never know you would absolutely never know that there's something wrong with me right but it's just like you said it's exhausting so there's one thing to be out in public and there's another thing to like go home and have to (laughs) walk it off you know in that way of like resting it off so if you don't have like a support system i mean it can just be absolutely brutal to be subject to the whims of society or what other people around you might think if they do know and if they don't know then you're you just have that isolation okay so you know i think where this scene turns both maybe for the audience but definitely for cassie is when jennifer explains why the summer house is in her file and that it's that her mother tried to drown her. And then we, we and Cassie watch Jennifer see that vision of her mother. And you, that is the turning point where Cassie starts acting like a human being again. And you can see her looking at Jennifer and like it all, you know, it's all subtle, like just the acting, but you can see her demeanor start to change because, you know, Jennifer has just really opened up about something that's like incredibly, I mean, Jesus Christ. Like her mother. It takes Cassie out of the mission and it makes Jennifer a sympathetic character and who Cassie can now see as a victim of, of circumstance. And that is something that Cassie both can relate to mm-hmm. and then can see, can empathize now with Jennifer and now sees 
Like she's now firsthand glimpsing because of this tra- trauma, this triggering that what Jennifer has gone through her entire life and how sad that is. And, and so finally, yeah, she, you see the switch in Cassie where now Jennifer is a sympath, like she sympathizes with Jennifer and then now feels protective of Jennifer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the moment though, I mean, what, when Cassie tries to then leverage that and say, maybe you're crazy can save the world. Jennifer is now in a place where she can recognize, both recognize, like on the one hand, she recognizes and calls that out as a manipulation. Yep. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, that's true. (laughs) <laughs> it, it is yeah. it will save the world and one of you jump in because what it was one of your points about how she takes something that's like her trauma and steps up and finds a new purpose i don't want to steal the thunder well i think in a moment and with anyone that moment of knowing knowing when you're being manipulated and and that and being able to recognize that allows you to be able to take back your agency and then own your trauma so then she gets to take that trauma, own it, and, and deal with her past, deal with all of her complicated relationships, and make peace with it, and then she lets go of that, then she can gain control. And so she gains control then with being able to communicate with Cassie, and then we later see her being able to gain control in how she deals with Olivia, because Olivia, you know, specifically used the mother angle with her. So... God, this is the part, Tina, <laughs> where I want you to almost earmuff <laughs> because there's a parallel here to, to season seven Buffy um, and, and Spike and uh, yeah, earmuff for a second, Tina. Like, <laughs> he, you'll know, like when he's dealing with the past issues with his mother and the, there was a trigger and he had to like relive his a trauma that had happened and once he did that, he gained control of, of whatever power that someone else was holding over him. Right. And, and, and Jennifer did the same thing. Like that real, so when she called out that manipulation and then when she retold the story of what had happened to her with her, with her mother in the bathtub, like that was the moment that Jennifer finally got to take back her agency and yeah. understand her, her like place in the story. And that she actually has more control than she ever realized, both with being a primary and and moving forward in helping the team. Cece, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, I thought okay. you were. <laughs> I just, yeah, I didn't. I'm I don't want to spoil any of Buffy. You didn't even her. spoil anything. You I was trying it. really hard to like make it really perfect. ambiguous. It's my fault for. You know, it's 2019 and I'm watching Buffy now. <laughs> and so <laughs> and being so fucking slow about it. <laughs> oh man, I have three kids and I'm watching 12 Monkeys in my spare time. <laughs> I know. God damn it. Whatever. What I think is a super interesting parallel when you put this next to what Olivia did to her. Yes. Yeah. It's super interesting because, so, like you said, Jennifer can now recognize the manipulation, which gives her, you know, an element of agency. So that is, that is a step in the right direction. Yeah. Because she, like, like Amy just said, has been able or, or is able in this, um, 
episode to call out the trauma she had from her mother. And specifically, the thing that I find most interesting is her talking about the things that her mom used to say, you know, like the monster, the monster that ends the world, like, I'll get it out of you. And then everything that Olivia said in her nice, delightful way reinforced what Jennifer thought she was always going to be. So it kind of backs up to that point, you know, where at first it was like, God, how easy were you to manipulate that you should just end the world and drop a plague? Well, she's been primed for that her entire life. Right. And you ha- not only that, I mean, she takes what her mother's, you know, you don't know if it's like its own loop of her mother's mentally ill. Her child is drawing, in some cases, very disturbing images, right? So it's its own circle of then when her mother filtered that through, like, right, what what was going... I mean, obviously, her mother was at a point of mental illness where she almost killed her own child. Yeah, she was at a super break. She was not being properly treated. And so that's its own. But then it's not only what Olivia told her, but the whole recreating taking that moment of trauma for Jennifer of almost being killed in a ba- like as a mother watching that it, it is it is taking you know kind of like the hairbrushing that yeah. Olivia does it's taking something that is so basic and intimate and universal like as a mother caring for a child it's like one of the first things you do like when you bring a baby home like you'll I'll never forget giving my like my children their first bath right and giving them baths it's like such a like universal thing that mothers that parents do for their children and so the fact that jennifer was almost killed like it doesn't like a a mother killing a child is like beyond like i don't even know how to put words to that but then also taking something that is such a basic function of like a mother caring for a child and turning that into a moment of trying to drown your child Mm -hmm. and then olivia takes that and remember in season one when Jennifer yeah. comes to the bath and co-ops that moment as part of the manipulation of the like reiterating that you're the monster that's going to end the world. It's all it's such a tragic master manipulation, which it, I think is what's so great about the moment when Cassie's like this can save the world is here's for the first time someone really outright saying no. All of this, all these visions and stuff that you've been seeing your entire life that everyone like else has been like, I wouldn't say vilifying her for, but like her mom almost killing her over like this, you're a monster. And then Olivia using that saying like, hey, you can use this to destroy the world, you know, and sending Jennifer off to like disperse the virus and all that kind of thing. Like Jennifer felt like she was living up to the potential that everyone always told her it would be. You're going to be the monster that kills everyone. And then here's Cassie finally laying out, here's what you need to do. Like you got to trigger this trauma, but in the end, you're what the choices you make right now, you could end up being the person that saves the world. And so Jennifer hears that. And the moment she hears someone like say that you can use this crazy that you've been dealing with and use it for something positive and actually save people without a moment's hesitation, Jennifer just takes that and it's like, okay, yeah, I'm down. Let's roll, bitch. We're doing this. Like trigger me. And it's so brave. It's so brave. I mean, Jennifer is the best of us all, guys. Oh, um, don't. <laughs> and it's just it's it's one of many moments where it starts mm-hmm. where she's more than willing even in this episode to sacrifice herself mm-hmm. 
uh, for the greater good. And I'm not the monster anymore that she's now, it's, this is her, the turning point where she now becomes kind of like the linchpin or the hero in the story with mm-hmm. the team. Like her role is just as important, you know, in the end as, as Cole's is, as far as a part of this. Yeah, uh, she's mm-hmm. the guide. Where she's the guide. Like, without... like, yeah, she's, I a mean, part she's of... there. Word of the witness. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So like, and this is the moment all of this starts to shift for her. As far right. as what her role is, and then later when also she sees, like, the, the word of the witness and sees, you know, when, when her death is, I think that also, you know, and we can talk about that later, but it gives her the strength to have the courage to do what she needs to do. Right. Um, you know, because knowing that, oh, well, here's this fixed date that, you know, I'm going to kick the bucket, then, okay, well, it's not today. Well, that's good. So I can do what it, <laughs> do what I need to do you know, for, for Cassie here. But yeah, like this is like Cassie telling her like, Hey, you can save the world is one of the first moments that someone has taken her, her like primary, like her, her crazy quote unquote, like, and to use it for good. That means she's good. Like her, it feels like her entire life. People have told her she's bad and she's taken that on. So, and in, including Cassie has made her feel that way in the past, like we talked about. And now here's this moment of bonding and Cassie is one of the people that tells her that, no, you're, we need you. And you're one of the heroes of the story. I just, ah, Jennifer. Yeah. Even if she doesn't mean it yet. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> right. It's just a means to an end at the moment, but that's okay. We'll right. get there. So that takes us to Casa de Childhood Trauma. And um, I think it's, you know, it's kind of an interesting touch that time has basically stopped in that house, right? It's exactly as she remembers it. We learn that the whole Markridge name, money, all of that legacies actually came from her mother and not Leland Goines. Mm. Um, Then we get to Jennifer's room. And Jennifer's room is a, like, Easter Sunday of Easter (laughs) eggs. It's crazy, all the pictures that are on the wall. Like, before we, like, dive into them, now I can't help but think of child Ethan drawing. Yeah. Right? And picturing Jennifer. And it's just, like, what a burden for a child to be like sitting alone in a room and having all of these pictures in your head. Some of them are terrifying mm-hmm. and drawing that and drawing them and, you know, at least like, and then having your mother be terrified of you and hate them, right? And you can't control it. It's just like picturing little, we can, we know what little, we now know what little girl Jennifer looked like, right? <laughs> From season three. So now yeah. you can like picture her in that room and it's just, like, my heart hurts thinking about a child dealing with all of that. Um, but it is staggering when you think about – we can break down all of the images – that these are images Jennifer saw as a child that have been in her head her whole life – and then is going to, in some cases, witness them firsthand. In other cases, know that what other characters are going to witness firsthand, right? It's like the yeah. movie already played in her head, but the but the frames are all out of order, right? Um, so the pictures on the wall. We have the demon, like the monkey demon, which is like the universal thing that all of the primaries draw. Mm-hmm. We have a building on fire with firemen. Is that the factory in 212? Yeah, I don't I I'm don't not sure. recognize that. I'm not sure. We have a hyena. 
We have old Jennifer from behind with the veil. We have the head daughter holding a gun. We have another picture of the factory. We have a skeleton, which I don't know if those are Olivia's remains or just sort of like a representation of death. A person with- Or maybe was the the person uh, like the Red Forest Storms? Mm, Yeah, good point. Um, I mean, I'm not sure, but- Yeah. A person with their- It looks like they're standing up on a platform with their hands up. Um, Don't- I'm not sure- Probably the subway scene. Oh, could- You mean all the way in season four? Uh Uh-huh. Interesting. I, it could be. I mean, you can. It's fun now, right? Like we can just play with it. Um, there's like a man. Her, did she draw herself in any of the pictures besides the one of old her behind the veil? No. I can't remember all the no, pictures. No, it would. She wouldn't have even known who that was. That's true. Yeah. Okay. Then there's a man speaking to it, like in a microphone. There's a man in a tie, which maybe this is just. It's too big of a jump. It looks to me like Sebastian, but they mm-hmm. hadn't cast that yet. Um, but it looks like Sebastian. You have an image of the witness, which, you know, immediately Cassie goes to because that's the image she's already seen. We've got Cole paradoxing in season one. There's a picture of Jones. And then there's a lot of stuffed animal monkeys all over the room. <laughs> like, or just, just like a both sad and fun touch. <laughs> the, um, and then we have um, both the picture of her as a kid in a pool with a toy unicorn. <laughs> and then the toy unicorn is in the bath when her mother tries to kill her. So it's like a map of Jennifer's mind, childhood trauma, future triumphs. It's just a lot to take in. And it's amazing the amount of detail and planning that went into have that all in there right like both thinking ahead and also remembering what was like continuing to build all of that god um, right what, what assholes <laughs> <laughs> and i keep way. thinking about the stuffed animal monkeys too and i'm like those fuckers i bet there were 12 of them too <laughs> i only counted three but i kept looking you know that there's 12 in that room. oh yeah <laughs> They just yeah, didn't all make it on crying, camera. So that's fine. Um, then the you have this moment of connection between Cassie and Jennifer, which was beautiful the first time around. But now that we – when Jennifer talks about her mother and her mother going away and not getting to say goodbye, which I think she has a remarkable amount of compassion for a woman. I know it's her mother, but like – that also tried to kill her, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then Cassie asking Cassie, was your mom nice? And Cassie saying that she lost her mom suddenly when she was 10 and she didn't get have a chance. She didn't get a chance to say goodbye. And now we will, it just all comes flooding in about season three and Cassie getting that moment to say goodbye, both as an adult and redoing the past to go to the museum with her mother, but also how all these women are tied together in saving Ethan. Both mm-hmm. Cassie going to her mom for insight as to whether Ethan is someone who can be saved and Jennifer literally saving Ethan. It's just, there's so, it was a beautifully acted scene and a moment of connection of these two women that grew up all through their adolescence and is like without their mothers. So it's just this like beautiful connection through that loss, but also now has so much more weight because of everything that happens in season three. 
So then we have sort of keying up the next episode, um, Welcome to Fear City, and Cassie's amazing. I saw that in a documentary on the history of hip hop. You're That's full of surprises. The most freaking random ass Cassie line maybe it's in the whole show. Awesome. So random. But it's like the one thing that would like make Jennifer then connect with Cassie a little bit like, oh shit. That's cool, you know, like <laughs> yeah. maybe Cassie is cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's such a, you know, it's we've we've just been heavy in women losing their mothers and one of them almost being killed by their mother. We needed that levity. Oh, you know? Totally. Yeah. yeah. Um and then we have the pallid man walk in being super fucking creepy with his amazing I know Tom it's all time Newton. travel. <laughs> it's also crazy that he's looking at that picture of the paradox as like, ah, oh, memories. And Cassie <laughs> was there too. And it's like this f- super fucked up reunion <laughs> from from the episode Paradox. Um, Especially because that's the moment they think that he died. I mean, they're not yeah. expecting to see him again. Right. Yep. Um, and he's got the scars on his face. Um, his face is full of scars from Cole from both the uh the knife wound in ha- in Haiti and from the paradox yeah. like so like even the paladin's face tells a history of like his interactions with Cole um he gives a really great hint that is foreshadowing that Olivia will recover despite what we see at the end of the episode when he says the reason why he survived the paradox is because he has really good genes. <laughs> um, and it's also just tying it back to Mantis with Father Made Us So Well. Um, you have that really great character moment of Cassie turning the gun on Jennifer. And no matter how many times Cassie's saying other people can't do what needs to be done, she can do what needs to be done. She cannot kill Jennifer in that moment. Yeah. And it's such a parallel to the, you know, to the rooftop scene in 201 and 202 when she was ready to take Jennifer. And I think she would have, like, at that point. Oh, yeah. I think at that point she totally would have. And she had to fight Cole over it. And now she's kind of in that same position. And someone's pointing a gun at her. And she can't shoot Jennifer. I love Jennifer's face in that moment too because again well first she has that like oh i bet you didn't see that coming like that was was so great but again good idea yeah again jennifer (laughs) was like willing to be sacrificed if that's what was needed for that so she was kind of like you know smiling like both because damn look at the balls on cassie but also Mm -hmm. like this is a good play like okay and she was just willing to go with whatever needed to be done it's like now she's really sitting and reveling in like hey I'm not the monster anymore. I've dealt with my shit and now I can like help the cause. And, and now, and now she's kind of bonding too with Cassie. Like there, you can see, you know, how we we're seeing Cassie warm up to Jennifer, but then you can also in turn see Jennifer start to warm up and understand Cassie better. Yeah. Before we go to Monkey Mansion, one thing we forgot, which I, I love this show for t- even tiny moments like this. Cassie says to Jennifer that your mother was wrong and I was wrong too. Mm. She owns what happened in the season premiere that she wanted to kill Jennifer. And that is her way of saying, I'm sorry. Yeah. And it's, it's important when you pit characters against each other in these like crazy, like she was going to kill her, that if you want us to believe that they are going to have a friendship, that they're going to be a team, that they're going to care about each other, that people say they're sorry out loud. Yeah. 
Um, her not killing her is like not enough to just gloss over what happened the first time. Right. Right. So that takes us to to Monkey Mansion. I like to think of this whole this whole scenario that goes down with Cassie, Olivia, and Jennifer as like this wonderful opening act to what we will ultimately see in the finale series finale in Titan. <laughs> Because there's there's some similarities. There's kind of like a promise made when Cassie's like, and I'm going to kill you too. Um, and you're like, someday you will. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's using a playlist to fuck with Olivia's. You know, Olivia's in the middle of her like diabolical scheme and their Jennifer's iPod is playing music somewhere. Then she's like, what the fuck's going on? So there's some Jennifer's great- Jennifer's got one move, but it is timeless and it works every- It works every time. <laughs> it's like, it's just- Every yeah. time it works. <laughs> so you have this like continuation, right? Like what what Olivia needs to do is finish Cassie's quote unquote immersion, which is what got interrupted in season one in the episode The Red Forest. But the difference, I love that like it showcases how far Cassie's come. Because the first time she was like, t- understandably, like, you know, she'd just been kidnapped. She's terrified when they first give her the tea. This time, she is so fierce and is like, fucking bring it. We, am I going to go see the witness? Fine. I'm going to tell the witness all of the ways that I have been fucking with him, right? And she is so, like, going toe-to-toe with Olivia, despite the fact that, like, she's tied to a chair and is about to be force-fed the red tea again. It's so great. Um, it just gives you like it's just such a great moment of like look at how strong and brave Cassie is now Um, and also like you can see it gets to Olivia like she pokes her right where Olivia is feeling sort of that crisis of faith you know that they've killed the messengers that they've there's only four of them left that they are fucking with the cycle that Olivia thought was impervious from being fucked with. And that's when she's like, shows anger, right? Olivia is usually so calm and it's hard to ruffle her feathers. And she gets so angry with the, you're important to him, not to me. And you're like, but dude, you're talking about yourself. (laughs) (laughs) You're jealous over yourself. (laughs) So before we go to Cassie in the bath and the red tea vision, Jennifer, um, using her quote-unquote crazy to her advantage, headbutting Stacy, and then she sees, we see, the word of the witness for the first time. Um, And it's such a, like, you know, this thing is, like, such a huge part of the show and the mythology. It's so, like, just stepping back for a second, just as a prop, it is so beautiful and intricate, and it's just really freaking cool, right? Like, I would love to have a copy of it. Yeah, I don't know. Hint, 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 hint. I think, I think, I think that's on us because I think you get a sense of like it's really big, Um, and you know it's interesting because even the name of it now is kind of a misnomer, right? Like it is the it's Ethan who made it. It is it is a word of a witness to things that happened. It is co-opted by the witness as a map of how to like battle the primaries, etc. But like even the name of it now, it's kind of a misnomer. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just kind of really uh, what the camera chooses to focus on is kind of emotional now. Like these, these arms of mine, that's Ethan recording the moment that his parents dance together. Um it teases a lot of the events of the last three episodes of the season, both 1957 and 
Jennifer seeing her death. Um, the tear in the corner, that's from 1961, right? When Ramsey yeah. rips it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then obviously, like, Jennifer seeing the day that she's going to die. It's both freeing and a burden, I would imagine, right? To know the day that you're going to die. Yeah. It's kind of cool that I, it's a ways off, though. Yeah. See, to me, I almost <laughs> That's freeing. Like, That's freeing, next yeah. Week, that would maybe suck, but 30 years? <laughs> like, let's go. Especially in Jennifer, like, especially in the world they're living in where it's very dangerous. Like, mm-hmm. Like, Jennifer, it's almost, yeah, I see it more as a freeing moment where she can take this and be like, oh, now that I know, like, now I know how I can help. Like, it, it, she, it causes her to have, like, a, a, a more sense of courage to do mm-hmm. the things that need to be done. And I think because of that, too, even in that moment, that gives her the courage to do what she needed to be to do to save Cassie yeah. and confront Olivia. Like, I think seeing that helped with that because before it, it, I think that would have gone differently, but, but knowing that I can take this risk. Yeah. Yeah. For the moment, she's indestructible. Right. Like I can take this risk and do what I need to do and I'm going to save my friend. And now that she like dealt with her trauma, now I'm going to also confront Olivia and what Olivia did to me too. So I think, yeah, I think knowing like when she would die gave her, gave her power, gave her a power back. Yeah, on the uh, definitely. It also And then by the time she actually reaches that point, she's so at peace with it like she yeah. doesn't, you know. Yeah, I guess the sense is it is the first it's our first instance. You know, Jennifer has a bunch of images jumbled up in her head that doesn't she doesn't necessarily have like the being able to see the puzzle from above, right? Mm-hmm. But but this is a one of the instances of like a concrete piece of information that she now knows yeah. that is a burden because she can't share it with anybody else, right? She's not going to tell Cassie what she saw. She, even when she's days, like, you know, she's not that far from it. When she saw Cole at the beginning of the episode as old Jennifer and he's concerned about her safety, she also can't share it with him because he'll probably try and change it. Right? Which is like, funny because he's like, you should come to the facility. And she's like laughing because yeah. like, she's going to die there. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I'll totally be safer here. there. Yeah. Uh, 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 You're uh. in danger. She's like, no shit. <laughs> like, yeah. But I mean, this just seeing this whole, this moment of Jennifer standing in front of Ethan's masterpiece. And we've now can remember like, you know, young man Ethan drawing this and that he's you know it's giving her information that she's going to save him he's going to guide her the you know he's almost like her guide like a primary guide to her that mm-hmm. i think helps her realize her full potential um and contextualize her visions she sees a lot of this stuff too mhm but he put it in a way that it makes sense. I mean, she's got scribbledy drawings everywhere. He was raised up in a way to know exactly who he is. And to get it all out of his head, he made, you know, a masterpiece you could easily follow that anybody could follow. Yeah. So it's just so interesting how it is transformed on rewatch. Like the first time you saw it, you know, first of all, it's a it's a giant puzzle, right? Like, that you want to figure out what are all these clues. It's sinister because you're like, holy shit, the person they're facing knows everything that's going to happen. And now it's just 
You know, it's like this beautiful masterpiece that Cassie and Cole's son made. And so it's just like, it's just, it's, it's like just such a moment that you're like, gasp, but in a totally different way than you were the first time around. You know, you know what, you know what though, like as a, when you look at the parallels between her and Deacon, as far as the document, it is, it is as inflating to her as it is deflating to him. Mm-hmm. She's on this thing. Oh, fuck you, B. Honestly. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it devastates him that, like, his name's not even on there. But, like, for her, she's like, shit, like, I'm really in this. Yeah. I'm a real true part of this. And even the enemy knows it. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, that it, it signified that, no, you're a real power player in this in this kind of chess match that we're playing. Mm-hmm. Like, you are a huge, influential part of this. Right. And you think it's the witness, but it's Ethan who wrote that down and Ethan who sees. So it's just, you know, it's one of those scenes that means something. It's just very different um, now that you know the whole story than when you first saw it. Um, One of many scenes in this show. But I wasn't expecting to be as floored by it. Um, It's also just beautiful, right? Like the amount of effort and detail that went into creating that, uh, like for a TV show. It's just, it's beautiful. Um, so that takes us to Cassie in the bath, um, and Olivia doing her, like, you know, now it, like, fills me with rage, bullshit, like, giving someone a bath, playing with their hair, (laughs) talking, like, just, like, stop your shit, Olivia. Um, but, you know, all of this now is previewing what we're gonna see, obviously, in Blood Washed Away, um, and it's also gonna be key to allowing witness Olivia to like enter and take over Cassie's consciousness. And so it's just setting in motion. This moment sets in motion like the rest of the season with Cassie being basically possessed with everything that follows from that, with reinforcing her red forest visions for when she finds Cole and blood washed away. So um, the, the scene when Jennifer finds Cassie in the bath, it is so it must be so empowering for her to rescue Cassie from like the clutches of Olivia, of Olivia doing exactly to Cassie what she had done to Jennifer. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so like, you know, just watching it like as a woman, you know, Cassie's like in the bath, she's totally out of it, she's naked, right? And like Jennifer in that moment taking the towel, helping her out, caring for her. There's so much like intimacy and vulnerability in that moment that it's just, you know, it's, that's really vulnerable <laughs> to be like, you know, and for she someone was, to be taken care of that so way. she was so soft and motherly with her. Like mm-hmm. it was a very like, can you stand? Or are you, I mean, they're, yeah, it, they need to get the fuck out of there. And she was but being so calm and yeah. gentle, like that right. whole time. I mean, if you want to, like, really fuck ourselves up over it, she's taking this traumatic childhood experience of the of the bath and all of that meant to her as a child and acting motherly towards another woman who doesn't have a mother, right? Yeah. She, re- she was reversing the whole experience in her mind. Yeah. So that takes us to the final confrontation in um, – the drained, like right outside the drained pool, they definitely play, you know, 
I feel like when Jennifer is fucking with Olivia, there is much fucking with the audience because you're really like, oh, no, right? Like she's falling into her clutches again. And look at Cassie's face. Mm -hmm. I mean, the whole thing, she's again an audience insert. I mean, the whole thing is playing on her face like, oh, shit. Like, here we go again, you know? (laughs) Right. Are you going to be the one that puts me back in there? (laughs) Right. And then she, the, just the, I get to say goodbye to you and stabs her. And it is, you know, and we got the line that we talked about before, you know, no more, no more tea, no more water, no more baths. You've got as symbolic as you can get, like Olivia lying in the bottom of a empty pool (laughs) where there is no water um, with her body broken. And it's just like such, it's such a triumphant moment. Um, And I was thinking about it. Jennifer will not see Olivia again until she comes into Raritan in season three. Right. Mm. Yeah. So she's, she's thought this whole, she thought that in that moment that she killed Olivia. So one of yeah. the things in uh, that I find interesting from a symbolic perspective is, I mean, you know how often water is used. I mean, in in any religion or in any um, kind of society, is like with its like healing properties, or it provides life, or it's like baptism, new life, that sort of thing. The interesting thing about the difference between Jennifer's experience in the bath and Olivia's experience in the pool is Jennifer specifically pointed out that because the water overflowed, that's what saved her because like the maid heard it and stuff. And now Olivia like has no water to save her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To break her. Fa- right. Uh, that's a good point. Yeah. I have to say the moment, you know, one of the reasons why Olivia is such a compelling antagonist is because we are with her in these moments, like when she's lying paralyzed, face down in a pool, crying. Like, is this one of the only times we see Olivia, right? Like this, I mean, so- Oh yeah, she's totally broken down at that point. She is broken. And letting us see, we don't know that it is our main, you know, antagonist in the entire story, but letting us see an antagonist have that kind of moment, it- you can't you I can't help but empathize, right? Like you just feel it's awful. Um, even if you're so glad that Jennifer and Cassie got away, the way they film it, the way they let us see what it's like for her in that moment, it, it is not only like the witness in the house told her to do this, right? She had the instructions to prepare Cassandra. She did what the witness asked, and she's lying there face down in a pool paralyzed. Yeah. Faith, we. Yeah. And, and yeah, and that's the moment where she reached and um, she's <laughs> hit rock bottom. Um, <laughs> we're in, but a complete loss of, of the faith that she had. Whereas, whereas, you know, the Tom Noonan, you know, is, has this complete blind faith. Olivia in this process gets her faith completely stripped away. But right. then this is where she builds herself up and she, and she does it herself. Like, so this is the point where it all switches to where it's not someone else. I'm doing someone else's bidding, which was always her, but, but finally taking back her own agency in the story. Right. I mean, and and there's so much like, right. The palette, her brother, it's her brother. It's her brother. (laughs) He literally kicks her while she's down and mocks her and like laughs at her and walks away. Yeah. He, he leaves her there. Yeah. And he gives her this like, 
Yeah, I remember when I was lying and waking up from the coma, coma too, and, you know, but I was worried about the Red Fort, right? It's all about, like, his, like, blind faith and scars are meaningless and, like, it's because all of this is to give up their mortal bodies anyway, right? You're right. saying that to your sister who's lying broken and paralyzed on the ground. Like, it's so fucked up. And there's never any, like, he still doesn't help her at the end. <laughs> like Right, right. But I mean, so here here's the thing that on um rewatch, you you felt like this was like Olivia's low point, right? Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't get it, it doesn't get lower than than well, I guess it can. No, but this but, is the start. But it is when he walks when the pallid man drinks the tea, like so the first time you're watching, you think that this is now a turning point in the power struggle between Olivia and her brother. Because now he's the one who gets to drink the tea. He's the one that gets to go in the house of cedar and pine. The witness tells him, it's your birthright. Yes, you lead, right? You think that this is a turning point, mm-hmm. that the pallid man is now in charge. We're going to see him at the end of the season, you know, with Cassie in front of all of the, like, religious followers. Like, he's he's the head honcho in Titan. You think that this is the turning point and their power struggle. And it is, but not at all for the reason we think. Mm-hmm. When he walks into that room, it's future Olivia manipulating him, playing him, telling him, ev- like Olivia always does, everything he wants to hear, right? His ego, this is your birthright. And all of it is fucking playing him to take over by the end of season three. <laughs> yep. It's amazing. <laughs> She's it's literally a- the ones calling the shots. Like, yeah. sure, you're in charge. No worries. Oh, my God. It's so amazing now. She's lying there, like, broken in the bottom of that pool. And you think that this is like, but really, it is the moment that she, like, transcends and is calling the shots and manipulating him. And it's so funny because he thinks it's his moment of triumph it's his victory (laughs) here it's his yeah it's his birthright like all of his dreams are coming into fruition and what it is is olivia using using that faith and that his blind ego to get to this moment knowing that that's how he feels about this and using it against him and it's like the ultimate manipulation that ends up in his downfall and his Mm -hmm. death it's his demise ultimately it's amazing. And I love that this show lets us like, you know, this this episode has so many women triumphing like over past scars or being right like at a like taking ownership. And what I love is like on the first time it was about Jennifer doing that. But when you rewatch even our quote unquote villain, you get to kind of like be like, yes, like fuck her brother who kicked her <laughs> in the bottom of the pool, you know? Um, yeah, it's just. Well, in, in like psychology and stuff, it's, it's something that is referred to as like they're, they're having these women like, like Jennifer, like Olivia having corrective emotional um, responses. So if you have a traumatic experience in order to deal with it, you, you need to, cause you're never going to be able to get rid of the trauma that, that happened at any point, whether it be Olivia at the bottom of the pool, whether it be Jennifer when she was almost, you know, drowned by her own mother. But what you have to do to try to get through and pass that trauma, because you're never going to get rid of that memory. You're never going to get rid of that, that part that happened in your life. So what needs to happen is you need to have a corrective experience that reverses it. And I, they did so well in this episode to show that, that this is how people get over trauma 
is having a, because then like, like we talked about earlier with, with Jennifer and getting Cassie out of the tub and stuff like that and saving someone. Um, and then, you know, later Olivia essentially taking this moment and using it to save herself and, and build a stronger Olivia, like doing something. They, both Olivia and Jennifer are gaining back their agency and their control of the situation and had a corrective emotional experience that reverted the traumatic experience that they had. And I thought and it was really great that they showed that they actually showed that that's something in psychology they use all the time to util- to help people get through tr- traumatic experiences that they that's that that's what happened here. And the ultimate like, yeah, all of that and what is even like just to bring it back to the point we when we were kind of setting out the structure of the episode, it is the the two future versions of Olivia and Jennifer that set all of the players in motion. Yeah. To, to go through this day, and it is a really important turning point for both Jennifer and Olivia. And, and they are going to be locked into this, like, they're really, you know, like, o- Olivia is the witness, Jennifer is the guide of the demon, and, and they are locked all the way through the finale when Jennifer lures Olivia to bring Titan to them, right? They're locked in this back and forth. And so it's just like they have their own kind of like cycle or loop <laughs> of being like locked in with each other. And it all stems from this day is such a turning point for the both of them. Oh, it's so, it's so great. So and it's, great. it's so great in a way now that you know, you that we know the whole puzzle from above in a way that like you couldn't possibly have imagined when you watched it in season two, even though I always loved this episode. Um, yeah. I would love to have a future me come back and kick my ass like that. <laughs> right? Can I have a future <laughs> me come back and be and give me the strength to like get to that future self? Like, thank you. That'd be nice. <laughs> Right. Um, do you guys have anything else about uh, Jennifer Olivia, or should we move to uh, Casserole at the Bar? Yeah, let's round this out. <sighs> All right. You're so calm about it. <laughs> Am I, I? I'm trying to be. <laughs> it's such a great shipper moment. Because like I say in my notes, it says the part where Tina flails. <laughs> <laughs> I love how they meticulously bur- like build the slow burn. This is such a great scene of... You know, as much as they are still at odds, Cassie noted that he likes whiskey sours. She orders one for him when she sees the lights flicker. Although I noted that the Emerson Hotel sure doesn't make whiskey sours like they used to. <laughs> it's like, yeah, what the hell? Yeah, that's like a that, shot. Jesus. <laughs> in a good glass. That's so disappointing. If you recall, you're like, where's, where? I thought it's supposed to be a little frothy. And where's yeah, the cherry they and clearly <laughs> don't use the egg whites at the Emerson. Whiskey or sour. <laughs> <laughs> like this is tequila jesus there's so m- you know it's a short scene it's very simple and yet it means so much the fact that she ordered the drink for him the fact that he ag- is like ag- realizing that she remembered um and then you know the fact that like even though they have all of this conflict between them he knows her well enough that he knows that she is upset you know, she's not just staying to take care of Jennifer, like something happened. Yeah. And he's trying to reach out to her to let her know that like, you know, acknowledge like, I know things aren't okay between us, but I'm here for you. And you can always talk to me. And, you know, when you're Isn't going- Isn't that the first time he's like admitted that too? In the sense of like, that he's acknowledging it's still there and he's not trying to fight it? 
Right. Yeah, that's yeah. that's things really are not important. okay between us, and I know I'm not the one. Who's yeah, the be fact able to solve that, that so like let me back up. The fact that all of these little like like rifts in these relationships get verbalized um, and get textualized to each other is so important, not only just in the story aspect, but to rebuild these relationships back. The fact that they actually have Cole say that to to acknowledge that. I I see that this we're still at odds, but I'm still here for you. Right. Like he's not trying to relitigate it or fix right. it. Right. No, he's not trying to defend his, his position or try to instantly make things better. But he's just trying to just say that I know things are terrible, but I'm here. Yeah. It, Which it's I think he, shows growth on his part, though. Absolutely. That's exactly what he tried to do, you know, in, in 1944. Right. Was like, I'm over this. Like, why can't you be over it? And yeah. now he's giving her room to stew or to process or whatever it is that she needs to do while acknowledging, like, when you're ready, even if it's not about this, I'm always here. But also, you know, under the undercurrent of that is like, when you're ready, I'm ready. Yeah. I mean, he begins the episode and he ends the episode basically communicating to her, things may be fucked up between us right now, but I have your back. Yeah. I'm here for you. Um, yeah. And I mean, and then she, you know, in Cassie can be, you know, she shows a lot of vulnerability with Jennifer, but with everyone else, she can be quite guarded. And so when she reaches out and grabs his hand, because she's worried that he's about to go to the 70s and face a serial killer, you know, it, it is a moment of of breaking through that wall that she's built up because she's worried for his safety. And all of these even though they're all small things, they are so important for the audience, particularly when you're going to take a couple on the journey that they take them this season to have these emotional check-ins to let yeah. us know that like, despite there's all there's that all of this conflict, these two people still care about each other. Well, and I think that hand grab was equally important to her, not just showing her worry for, you know, knowing that Cole has to go and, and face this, this guy who's not so great. But also because in that moment and the trauma that she kind of just went through with Olivia, that she also needed that physical contact from him, but still wasn't quite ready to let him in. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. she, she still wasn't ready to tell him what was going on, but she still also needed that, that, that physical contact to steady her and make her feel okay. So I think that hand grab to me was, wasn't just like, Hey, I'm worried about you, Cole, but also I, I, you're my grounding force sometimes. And I need to ground myself in this moment for the both of us. Well, I also think it was her like reciprocating what he just said without words. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Because like, I think yes, she's still not to you matter to me. Yeah. I'm not ready, but I will be. Yep. So don't give up on me. Yeah, absolutely. Ah. I'm going to cry. Oh, my God. What the <laughs> Dude, you're breaking my ship. What? My casserole ship yeah, apart, like, guys. Wait a minute. That's the wrong person crying right now. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> well, I mean, Cassie often shows it through, like, right? Their ultimate confrontation, she's going to run out of words, and it's going to, like, she's going to be the one that reaches out physically. So yeah. mm -hmm. it is the character consistency 
of that's like the through line that Cole is the one who often reaches out like verbally, but she expresses herself physically in a different right. way. And it's just like they know their characters so well, right? Like you can you can see the pieces of that even in a scene that's as simple as like the two of them talking at a bar. Isn't it so great that it's like an inversion of kind of what you normally see in male female like relationships? It's usually like the women who want to express themselves verbally as far as what they're feeling and the men that reach out and express their emotions through like physical means. Mm-hmm. But in this case, it's it's Cole is the one that starts to he's the one that always kind of tries to initiate conversations and feelings whereas Cassie's the one that loses what she wants to say and has to reach out physically. Yeah, it's such a great inversion. There was an article, actually, I forget. uh, I forget what website it was. Maybe it was like in it it was around the time of all the end of the year stuff in December, January. And it was it said, like, is James Cole our sci fi hero for the post Me Too era? (laughs) And I was like, yeah, he like, but he kind of is like he talks about his feelings. He defers like he's equal partners with women. Right. Like, you know, that's kind of. We're seeing it a little bit more now, but like that is kind of a new this whole dynamic. It's it's not one that like we grew up watching in sci-fi right. and genre stuff. Right. For sure. I don't think you would, yeah, consider James Cole like the stereotypical alpha macho male. Like he's not that at all. Um, so yeah, it's it's a different sort of kind of hero that than what we grew up with. Us right. old, it, anyway. <laughs> oh, so, yeah. Uh, who still remember China Beach, right? <laughs> Which is amazing, people, okay? <laughs> so, you know, obviously, the, the journey we've gone on in this episode, starting out with Cassie being like, Jennifer Goins is the worst, to now voluntarily staying behind, even though it has nothing, you know, directly on point having to do with the mission, that she's going to stay behind and be basically a a doctor and a friend and take care of Jennifer Mm. says so much, you know, and and she's thinking about this as in maybe this, you know, maybe this is why I think this is why old Jennifer wanted us to go through this day. And there's definitely that. Um, There's a lot of other reasons why old Jennifer needed to preserve (laughs) what happened on this day. But, but yeah, I mean, it's just a huge turning point. I mean, this is basically Jennifer's second friend, like, yeah. The second true friend that she's made in her life. Yeah. And, she's and besides staying- when um, – I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. And then, I mean, what I love about it is you've got that sign of a relationship that has taken a remarkable step forward. But so is Cole ordering the bottle of whiskey for Deacon yeah. to take back to 2044 for him when he started the episode – plotting his execution <laughs> so it's we take it basically some- following through with it it's just a really all, great uh, episode as far as purposes. character like journeys like it's, it's a very character it's a character driven series obviously but this episode in particular really like solidifies who the team is now because it really kind of brings in deacon into the fold they warm up more to him anyway and then it really kind of makes jennifer feel like she has a place now not just because Cole, but now she has Cassie. Yeah. And then we end with Jennifer, you know, tying together Jennifer in 2016 and Kyle Slade in 1975, both drawing visions in their head. Jennifer keeps writing the day she's going to die over and over again. Kyle is saying, um, 
he mentions Titan, and then he does the the James Cole is finally coming <laughs> for me, like the chosen one, except he's not. Um, is coming. So, and that's also, how they I'd like to point out a different in medium because like Jennifer <laughs> does charcoal drawings and Kyle does it in blood. Uh, <laughs> so, like, a little bit different, <laughs> slightly. <laughs> I was trying to stave off the creepy serial killer stuff until next week, Never. but. <laughs> Oh, man. Tina um, said that when we record that, she's going to be under a blanket, and I reminded her that that only works for monsters. So. <laughs> it's not helpful, Beep. Yeah, no. Uh, I don't handle serial killer stuff well, as we've established. So Clearly. Yeah, <laughs> draining body parts so that you can paint in blood is not my thing. <laughs> but it's most definitely Kyle Slade's thing. Um, did you guys have anything else? I think that's it. Amy, it's so fun. Thank you so much. We're so excited well, no, to have you on. Thank you guys for actually like taking two days to record this because I fell ill. So, how oh, you were a trooper for coming back? Yeah, I tried to be a trooper last night, and that didn't work out so hot. <laughs> <laughs> So next up, we're going to be uh, having some fun with a serial killer in 1970s Fear City, New York City. Um, we're, we're, Cole's going to enjoy Tab and Pancakes. We're going to have uh, Moral Dilemmas. We're going to have the return of Aaron Marker, kind of. Um, Joe from May We Geek Again will be joining us. Um, and it is a really, really interesting episode debating the Red Forest now that we all know what the finale is. Um, it's kind of like the opening argument to Cassie. So looking forward to talking about that. And if you guys don't have anything else, then we'll see you soon.